Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, this will be the first time anything has ever happened to us. Well, not really. We've talked about horror films before. Anyway, we're going to talk about the world of psychological horror at the dawning of the 60s. Hitchcock may have been the master of suspense, but one Robert Wise took some tricks he learned from RKO and a certain Val Luton and added a dash of scale to terrify an unsuspecting audience with 1963's The Haunting. So see the show, stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. God, it knows I'm here. I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. Now look, Doc, we're buddies, okay? But don't try to convert me. I'm trying to prepare you. My name's Markway, Dr. Markway, a scientist interested in the supernatural. The unnatural, if you like. I came to Hill House to find the key to another world. Assisting me in this exploration of the unknown was Eleanor, Nell, who could look back into the past, and Theo, Something of a witch who could see into the future. This is Luke, who didn't believe in anything. Until evil, patient and waiting, made him change his mind. Stop it! God. God. Whose hand was I holding? How many of us take seriously the things we cannot or do not want to understand simply because we are afraid? Eleanor, you're Paul! Did you hear me calling? This house. You have to watch it every minute. The Haunting was produced and directed by Robert Wise, brilliant producer of West Side Story. The stars consist of a cross-section of top talent in the world of entertainment. Julie Harris, Claire Bloom, Richard Johnson, Russ Tamblin. What does it take to convince you that the dead do not always rest in peace? That some houses, like Hill House, are born bad?
Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the topic of the day. Wise, in his wisdom, handed a copy of The Haunting of Hill House to screenwriter Nelson Ridding in the early 60s, and horror cinema has never been the same. What makes it work? Is it the terror we find with minimalist scares? Is it the eerie black and white photography? Or is it the very notion that there may not be any ghosts at all? We cannot solve this mystery alone. So here with us is a musician and podcaster who could be heard on such wonderful shows as Film Guff and Here Lies Amicus. Please welcome Kev Moore. Hello. Wow. Kev, you're here. And (laughs) I'm going to tell you something. You are, between Shamley and Yesteryear, the third British guest on this show. I've been <laughs> counting. <laughs> yes, yeah, so 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 this means I've gotten British bingo, and I can <laughs> claim my prize at the door. <laughs> Welcome, sir. <laughs> I've been I've been sitting on that joke for a week now. <laughs> And I'm not ashamed of it. Um, but welcome. You are um, uh, you you are a podcaster in your own right. And by I, I got to tell you, when I first became aware of your show, it was after the finale of Shamley and being exposed because Adam Roach, our final guest, um, put our show in a mention along with a slew of other shows that I was like, well, I got to listen to these shows. And then I just started opening up and going like, I've been missing so much. (laughs) This is ridiculous. There's Um, a lot of catching up to do. Oh yeah. But your show, um, film guff, I've, I've I've really liked connecting with it. It's gotten me to check out such films as Euro trip, which I had never seen up until that point. Um, and, um, I did like it. I enjoyed it. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fun, it's a fun movie of the early 2000s. Um, I love Matt Damon in it. Yes. <laughs> but like but it's like it's it's so hard like I I haven't gone back to comedies of that era in a while so I'm like does this hold up against American Pie Road Trip? I don't know. Um but the other show that you do that has fascinated me to no end is Here Lies Amicus. Oh yes. Now I am amicus ignorant, as I have espoused to you on Twitter openly. Yeah. Um, so for the audience who may also be um, as dumb as me, can you explain amicus and why it is so important? Amicus is a really weird little studio. It's not even a studio. It's just two guys. It's Max Ro- Rosenberg and Milton Sabotsky, um, mm-hmm. two New Yorkers that just happened to uh, love doing films and decided to produce films cheap as possible and the best way to do it was for um milton to actually turn up in britain stay Mm -hmm. here uh write and produce the movies and Mm -hmm. they did a slew of questionable quality films (laughs) 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 which ranged from the jazz pop infused ring-a-ding-a rhythm to mm-hmm. horror classics such as The House That Drip Blood. Um, oh, and, so. and not only that, as you talked about in a re- more recent episode, but they got into Doctor Who territory. Absolutely. Which I, yeah. I was shocked because <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not unaware of Who, but my knowledge of Who is uh, basic at best. So hearing that Peter Cushing was in these movies mm-hmm. kind of blew me back. Um, and to the fact that they were basically th- the the selling point was the Daleks, um, which after your episode, I I re 
went into it and yeah there was a dalek invasion like there was like it similar to a beetle invasion like there was like a dalek mania which i was just i did not expect that much popularity out of those little robots that say exterminate but <laughs> but it, it has compelled me this is on my docket after i finish mandalorian because i have to I have to be popular with all the other kids. Um, <laughs> I've got a, um, I've got Doctor Who on my um, watch list, and one of my friends from back in the day will be very happy to hear this because uh, he's uh, he's a Doctor Who nut, to say the least. So, um, but so yeah, there you go. You're Kev. You're you're exposing the world like uh, to people like me who sit in their basement going like, <laughs> I wonder how many times I can watch Room Service by the Marx Brothers in a row. Um, but let's get to the to the business at hand. I sent you an, uh, a message request to be like, hey, do you want to be on Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review? And you said, righto, mate. And I said, yes. Um, and then I said, just pick any film between before 1968. And you chose The Haunting, mm -hmm. um, which I... When I when I saw that I was like oh fuck yes and then I kind of realized I hadn't rewatched The Haunting in years, um, and uh, but it ended up being fortuitous um, that we're recording this episode a day after uh, Kevin and I uh, attend film club from the Secret History of Hollywood and they showed The Leopard Man by Val Luton or yes. well produced by Val Luton directed by Jacques Teneur mm -hmm. um, and uh, I hadn't seen that since film school but. Rewatching the Leopard Man after rewatching the Haunting, and then watching the Haunting after rewatching the Leopard Man, uh, it's very clear that Wise just took all that knowledge he learned from Val Luton and from his directorial debut, and basically just stuck it into the Haunting with seemingly a bigger, a, a more expansive budget than a Luton film would have gotten at RKO. Um, mm. I was going to ask for uh, posterity's sake, how have you gotten into Golden Age Hollywood? And more specifically, when is the first time you uh, experienced The Haunting? Um, Golden Age of Hollywood has always been around for me. Um, it's been there since uh, basically the summer holidays when I used to go and see uh, films with my nan. And mm -hmm. she's the one that was responsible for me loving the um, Laurel and Hardy films as much as I do. And mm -hmm. also the Marx Brothers. And she would always try and bang on It's a Wonderful Life. And I just could never get on with that. I just don't get that one at all. Well, but you can go fuck yourself right now. <laughs> <laughs> don't like my goddamn wonderful, beautiful movie about not committing suicide. God damn it. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. That asshole had to come into the room. <laughs> but but um, anyway, so so that's that's where my, my grounding was with um, classic Hollywood. But then my dad was always one. He's he's always been a, a horror fan himself. And um, God grief, it'll have been the early. Well, no, it'll been the mid to seven, mid seventies to sort of the late 70s when he showed me a double bill on a saturday night on um i think it was on itv i am not sure but it was it came from out of space and then Ooh. the haunting because they did a saturday night double bill now <laughs> i'd always been egging him on saying yes it's okay dad i'm old enough now i'm seven year old i can watch anything <laughs> now i can watch horror 
I'm all right. I'm, I can I'm watch tough. Hostel Dad. What's wrong yeah. with you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm tough enough. And of course, we watched. It came from out of space, and I went, yeah, no problem. Absolutely fine. I can handle anything. So I went, right. Well, the one that's coming up. Mm, yeah, go on then. We'll watch this. Watch the haunting. Mm-hmm. I cried. I cried ah. and cried and cried. Oh. <laughs> and oh. I didn't sleep for about two days. And in fact, I don't think I've slept properly since. Um, oh. Yeah. Robert um, Wise owes you an apology. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he can't right now. He's dead. But no, I, ah. I pat him on the back because, good God, he, he's what started me watching a lot of horror. <laughs> but That's very, that's very wow. similar to my experience with um, Psycho and Halloween. Because both yes. made me piss my pants scared. Yeah. <laughs> uh, ha- Halloween even more so, and I get and it was it was a comfort that uh, a crazy British doctor was there to be the 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 Van Helsing, if you will, and ease most <laughs> tension. Because when you're being chased around by a guy in a William Shatner mask, it's creepy. But thankfully, Doctor Crazy Pants is there to. See. Yeah, exactly, I, and it's played by I, Donald Pleasance, who plays uh, Crazy Pants in absolutely everything he's ever in. Which is amazing because in the first film he's very very tempered. As those sequels go on, he just—I yes. <laughs> love it because he does rightfully so lose his goddamn mind because he's just like I mm-hmm. don't I don't understand why can't I why can't I put him in the goddamn ground? <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's so that's so you have this early exposure to the haunting, which mm-hmm. I want to check off the list here. Pre seventies horror, black and white. What some would be assuming to be slow-moving early cinema, and yet it scared the piss out of you. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to hear anybody bitch about old movies being boring because Kev is a good example of how it can have an effect on you. Mm-hmm. And my experience with The Haunting is not as um, influential. However, um, when, I, when I was in high school, I went through a slew of classic films and specifically horror films. I really, really tried to cram in my horror education there. And I still have a few blind spots, but The Haunting came out um, for me from the library. And I watched it and I really appreciated how, for a movie of the early 60s, how new it felt. There's something about the cinematography, which we will talk about, Mm. where... It does not feel like it's even from the 60s. Like, I'm a big Psycho fan, one of my favorite films of all time. That film still feels like it's filmed within the 50s or early 60s era, like where the film quality and the film stock hasn't changed. Um, Lenses haven't really changed, per se. Um, So you're still dealing with your basic run-of-the-mill equipment that you've been dealing with from the late 40s on. Yeah. Um, And what Robert Wise does that I will always bow to is that he just decided to throw new technology against the wall to tell an old ghost story. He really Um, pushed it. Which, you know, I'll spoil this a little bit in advance. We were talking about this early on before coming on to record. Kubrick and Wise fall into very similar um, uh, trappings, which you were the one who kind of alluded me to that because Mm. Kubrick also delved with a lot of new tech in order to do The Shining and to do Barry Lyndon, and to do Full Metal Jacket, and to do Eyes Wide Shut, and just about, <laughs> any, just about anything that he ever did. <laughs> Everything, yes. And, um, I mean, it didn't 
take innovation and technology to drive Shelley Duvall nuts. That was just him. But um, everything else, you know, very much an innovation. And um, but uh, so watching The Haunting now, having a lot more films under my belt, um, having gone through film school, having tried to make films, watching The Haunting becomes a lot more impressive for me at this age than it was when I first saw it. I mm. respected it then. I really respect it now. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's not even just a testament to the technical acumen. Like this is, this is a great cast of people that I don't see that often in uh, films on my own free time. Um, not the Reese of Riches. We'll, we'll get to one of them. Cause I, I was, I, I had forgotten how big he was and I forgot that he's the father of somebody who's working today <laughs> until I was like, Oh, um, but we'll jump into a little bit of, um, before we do history on the haunting itself, I want to talk a little bit about Robert wise. Um, Robert wise started off as an editor, um, start, started off first as a sound and music editor at RKO in the thirties, um, which RKO was not a, um, uh, it was a mini major. It did not have the same resources or hits as uh, a Warner Brothers or an MGM. Uh, their history seems f- f- riddled with trying new things and seeing if they work. Um, where mm-hmm. Wise comes into this is that Wise, as he gains experience in sound and music editing, he moves into film editing, period. Um, he worked under uh, William Hamilton, uh, and his first film as an assistant was Winter Set in 1936. And he continued to work with him on other films like Stage Door, which was directed by previous episodes director Gregory, Gregory LaCava, uh, the film Having a Wonderful Time, the story of Vernon and Irene Castle, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, um, and Fifth Avenue Girl, also directed by LaCava. Um and his first solo film editing gig was on Bachelor Mother and My Favorite Wife. Um, and then in 1940 and 1941, Robert Wise gets the film editing gig of a lifetime. Yeah. Because guess who stepped into the picture? Oh, the glory of Orson Welles. And... Yes, in 1941, he edited Citizen Kane and was nominated for an Academy Award for film editing. Um, Wise, at the time of his death, was the last living crew member of Citizen Kane. And I didn't know given, that. Oh, yeah. And given his trajectory with Wells after Kane, it's amazing that he lived to tell the tale. <laughs> because, <laughs> because, unfortunately... Um, part of how Wise becomes uh, able to continue at RKO comes at the risk of... Now, this is a complicated issue, and I'm not going to ruffle any feathers. Wells's follow-up film was The Magnificent Ambersons, an adaptation of a Booth Tarkington novel, which is a, considered a great American tale. Um, and Wells's version was significantly longer than the version we have today. Mm. At the at the time that he finished it, he had assembled what he wanted and then was sent off to um, 
do ambassador work for the war effort in South America. And specifically, he was in Brazil filming uh, wartime propaganda films, which were basically supposed to be goodwill films, whereas the propaganda films of the war front were to show the were to boost the morale of our um uh, of our of, of our of us here back home in America um while the boys were off fighting overseas these goodwill ambassador films were basically meant to help spread culture of other uh nations to America to spread goodwill and also to keep South America out of Nazi hands um which is important work it's work that Wells, uh, I'm sure, didn't take lightly. However, as a consequence, it meant that it was much easier for RKO to look at the Magnificent Embersons, see that they did not like what was there, but they still screened it, and all preview tests came back negative according to um, most sources. There are other sources... Uh, people like Joseph McBride who say uh, that those are over-exaggerated because there are other cards that say it was the greatest thing ever made. Long story short, Robert Wise was the editor from the get-go, and RKO basically told him, recut this film. Um, there were reshoots done on the film. Wise did as he was told, um, which Wells never forgave him for. Wells never spoke to Wise again. Um, and it's a complicated issue because at the end of the day, you don't want to wrestle the creative control of a director away uh, from the project that you're creating. And then the other end of it is, is that Robert Wise would have risked his job at the behest of Wells and given Wells's trajectory probably would have never worked again. So it's a very complicated choice to make. Um, and when you're dealing with auteur versus studio, of course, everybody draws a line in the sand and says draw. Um, and uh, in this case, Wise drew and uh, succeeded. And um, now a lot of this leads him to be able to get more work. Um, and uh, he was also help. He also assisted on these reshoots for Amberson. Um, and Wise then continues to edit working on such films as Seven Days Leave, Bombardier, The Fallen Sparrow, and then uh, he receives his first uh, assignment. Um, and his first assignment comes other comes under the uh, production unit of Val Luton. Now, it would be easy on a podcast about Golden Age Hollywood to talk about Val Luton in brief broad strokes, but... Kevin and I are fully aware that that would be a fucking disgrace. So I'm instead going to post a link to the Secret History of Hollywood yes. series on Val Luton, which if you don't listen to it, I hate you. And it's, <laughs> it's a masterpiece. Um, yeah. Well, and also hate's a strong word. I'm just going to say you Both? don't listen to cool shit like Kevin yeah. and I do. Um, <laughs> and um, but like and so but the Val Luton unit starts off with Cat People by Jacques Tourneur, um, which is a film that relies on psychological terror and does not rely so much on showing an actual monster. So for anybody who hasn't seen Cat People, I'm going to spoil it for you. You don't see a cat person. <laughs> un unless you consider Simon Simon a cat person because it's all in your mind. It's kind of freaking cool. And then... 
uh, they amongst the things that were commissioned as follow-ups in the Val Luton uh, unit uh, was Curse of the Cat People. Um, and what ended up happening <laughs> was that it's it technically is the sequel because it follows the it follows the same group of people that can transform into the cats. Um, mm-hmm. but it's but it's much more about a young girl that falls in love with a ghost and uh <laughs> and 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 a lot of uh wonderful, beautiful imagery that Martin Scorsese will praise. Um and actually Here's another additional source if you're looking for Val Luton information is that there is a documentary that Martin Scorsese commissioned um, uh, 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 about Val Luton, which is pretty readily available both online and on the Criterion version of Cat People. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, it sums it up in an hour and 30 minutes, and that's nice and all. But again, listen to The Secret History of Hollywood where you get to have it for like 12 hours um, and get like a bunch of detail and Mark Gaddis narrating things. It's really cool. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking about the other podcast now. Otherwise, we could just uh, it could be a fan appreciation podcast. Why the hell not? <laughs> Did you do you remember that one story Adam told? <laughs> <laughs> it was fucking nuts, man. Um, But yeah. So anyway, this is his start and he gets a lot of praise for it. Um, And. He moves then from there, um, and he then moves on to within the Val Luton unit to The Body Snatcher, which is my favorite of the Val Luton films mm-hmm. and a film that I do want to talk about. And a lot of it has to do is because it has stars of first episode uh, episodes film, Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. Um, now, granted, B- Bela's not really in it, but he's in it. It's, it's very, very minimal. Um, and then... Robert Wise works up his uh, ladder. His last film at RKO is The Setup. Um, and that film earns him the Critics' Prize at Cannes. Um, and I don't know how to really describe his legacy because it's so vast. Like, kind of the beautiful thing about Robert Wise, as Kev alluded me to, is that he could kind of dip into any genre yeah. he so choose. Um, this is the small list. The day the earth stood still. Oh, tribute to film. a bad tribute to a bad man. Executive suite. Helen of Troy. Um uh the and he runs up the gamut up until he does well, he does some of somebody up there likes me, which is good. Um and then uh in nineteen sixty one he does West Side Story. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Wins best uh, the Academy Award for best director um, when the film also wins best picture and now the film's being remade by Steven Spielberg and um, and if if we ever see it I'm sure I will be just disappointed not because Steven's wrong I just it's kind of hard because West Side Story as it stands is pretty fucking brilliant um, uh, and then in 1962 he does. Two for the Seesaw, which is a movie I've never seen before, but I do like Robert Mitchum, and I do like Shirley MacLaine, so I need to watch this at some point. Um, but in 1963, um, he, he, for whatever reason, this is, this is why it feels weird. After you've won the Academy Award for Best Director, you know, the, 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 con- the conjecture is, is like, well, now you can do whatever, any project you want. And what's interesting is that Robert Wise, as his follow-up after the follow-up, is like, 
what if I do a throwback to Val Luton? Because that's basically what the haunting is, but albeit upgraded on the MGM scale. So it's got $1.05 million in its coffer to do minimalist horror, which seems like an interesting choice on MGM's part, especially since MGM is not doing great in the 60s. Um, They are a bit removed from the massive collapse they would then have in the 70s where they kept re-buying and getting rebought and sold all over the gamut. Um, There's like, there's archival footage of a, featurette in the Sunshine Boys Blu-ray of The Lion Roars Again, where they're trying to talk about like MGM's back in a big bad way under this new ownership. Um, and they don't, uh, they end up defaulting again and then getting sold uh, to Ted Turner, who then in turn sells it pretty quickly because he can't afford to keep that studio. Um, uh, I'm sure and, at one point Ben and Jerry's probably owned MGM. Oh, it wouldn't surprise me. I need to go further into this. I want to know how many people... Maybe Elon Musk owns MGM, and I'm just not paying attention. <laughs> anyway, um, but so the novel that Robert Wise taps into is a novel that I am not super familiar with, but it's Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, which has since become... Uh, an adaptation of sorts on Netflix via Mike Flanagan, the director of Gerald's Game and um, uh, Dr. Sleep. Now, I've still not seen his series, um, which is, again, my bad for not engaging in television. Don't bother. (laughs) Don't bother? No. Now, explain why. Um, Well, I tapped out after the first 15 minutes of the first episode because... In that first 15 minutes, it goes against everything that you expect from The Haunting. Ooh, okay. Um, Interesting. you see everything, and the idea that you can see everything within the first 15 minutes is ridiculous. You know, mm. you're not even supposed to see a ghost. Never mind anything else, but no, they're actually hiding under the bed. I gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Any psychological terror is lost. That's interesting because I'm a Mike Flanagan supporter. Um, Gerald's Game was a shock to me. Gerald's Game is a great film. I did not. Like, I was shocked that you were able to make that movie work um, because I've read very few Stephen King books. Uh, One of them is Carrie because Carrie. Uh, the other's The Shining because The Shining. Uh, and then the other one was Gerald's Game because it was a random pickup. I'm just like, I I guess I'll pick this up in high school. What's this? Uh, <laughs> sex game gone wrong? Okay. Um, and then you you read it and it's so centralized in that one location. It's like, mm. how do you do this? And how do you do it in a way that sustains the audience? And he found a way to do it. Um, and I like Dr. Sleep a lot because I think that movie performs a silly miracle by somehow not pissing off either faction. (laughs) I got out of that movie and I'm like, that's not the best movie of the year, but that's the most perfect movie of the year in the respect that I have not heard anybody bitch on either side. And if I have, and if I have, they've been quietly told to go to hell. Um, (laughs) But, um, and so so that's interesting that you say that because I've never read Shirley Jackson's book. Um, my knowledge with horror novels is um, 
specious at best. Mm. Um, apparently, uh, apparently, her uh, novel is a lot more explicit, whereas mm-hmm. the film is more implicit. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's that's partly because of the way that the screenplay has been sorted out. You know, and originally was going to do it as a, it's all in the mind of mm-hmm. um, Eleanor. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, Nell, yeah. yeah. And um, and there's like a, there's something that's interesting. So the commentary on this film right up front, it's one of the best commentaries I've yep. ever heard for a movie solely because one, virtually everybody's still alive. Yes. So that's amazing. Um, so you have Robert Wise in there. You got Julie Bloom, uh, or sorry, Julie Harris, Claire Bloom, Richard Johnson, Russ Tamblin, um, and Nelson Gidding. And Nelson Gidding explains that in the initial writing, they were going towards the notion of it's all in her mind. And mm-hmm. he actually had the second thought going like, well, we'll surely agree with this. <laughs> and so he went, and so he went to Shirley Jackson and he said, yeah, this, this is all in her mind. Right. And Shirley Jackson apparently stood there and just looked at him and said, no, but your fucking idea sounds fucking awesome. <laughs> and then Shirley Jackson just smashed a drink on the table and said another. And then that's how the haunting was made. No. Um, but this movie ends up basically dividing um, the perception and the POV. Um, yeah. Something that's amazing about it is it is a ghost story. It is unabashedly. It is a ghost mm-hmm. story. Except when it's not. It, um, <laughs> it, uh, it, it, it does manage to tussle between is this in the mind or holy shit fucking burn this house to the ground um because it's haunted yeah (laughs) it's so oh oh oh, we'll get to it we'll get to it because you are now you already know my favorite character in the movie and how i don't i don't think he gets talked about enough um because rightfully so this is julie harris's movie this is definitely yeah this is her chance to shine um Julie Harris, who is an actress that I am tangentially familiar with. Um, Same here. Uh, she is a very uh, naturally gifted actress that I am just like kind of shocked that I haven't delved into her work that often. Well, the thing um, is, with, with Julie Harris, um, she does a few films before this which mm-hmm. are fairly top-notch. You know, East of Eden, for instance. But then she kind of drops off the map as far as films are concerned and goes into TV. A lot mm-hmm. of her stuff then is TV only. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, even down to Tales of the Unexpected in the late 70s. Right. Oh, that's... Oh, yeah. That's what I'm seeing on here. Jesus. Yeah, oh, along, God. Yeah. Along with, uh, daft enough, um, along with Richard Johnson, who also appears in several d- different... <laughs> episodes of tales of the unexpected which is really strange at the minute because at the moment i'm watching loads of them oh that's a fun that's got to be a fun watch while you're hopeful yeah for anybody who doesn't know um uh kev is in lockdown because the country is in lockdown (laughs) um not where i'm recording it's go back to work or get poor (laughs) 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 Um, and i (laughs) oh capitalism so much fun it's so much fun. Oh, God. Um, I will say, though, there is another movie that I have seen her in, but it has been a while. It's Reflections in a Golden Eye, which is a John Huston film um, that is um, tussled with a lot 
when it comes to Houston's legacy because the version he wanted to go out did not go out. Um, and it also has uh, Robert Forster. Uh, so, of course, I'm going to love it because Jackie Brown. Cool. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. He is medium cool, if you will. He is. <laughs> nice. He is the descendants. He is. <laughs> Angel has fallen. Um, um, no, he's Max Cherry forever in my heart because I... Uh, I, I, I'm an unabashed Tarantino fan and Jackie Brown is my uh, one true love uh, when it comes to Rolling Thunder for me oh which really yeah oh, God, he's so okay. good in that ah uh, okay that's I'm gonna have to go back to that mm. but so here's the other one that I have not I have like virtually unaware of apart from The Haunting is Claire Bloom mmm Claire and Bloom Ah, she is beautiful. Th- I, I, yeah, she is beautiful. <laughs> she, she challenges the audience in this movie, especially for 1963. Wow, yes. Um, and uh, uh, she is the last. the The only other thing that I am fully aware of that I saw her in is 2010's The King's Speech, where she plays Queen Mary, and. <laughs> <laughs> She's and, Hera in Clash of the Titans. That's true. Okay, yep. That, yep. Okay, then I have. Yeah, all right. So then she's an actress that I'm just not paying attention to because I need to open up my damn eyes because, <laughs> God damn it, she is beautiful. She is stunning. And as we're going to get into in the plot, she is um, creating some challenging um, uh, perceptions for an audience of this era. Oh, mm. she's also in Limelight. God damn it. I need to... Get it together, Zach. She's in the spy <laughs> that came in from the cold as well. She plays the mm-hmm. uh, ex-lover. Yep, that yeah. is true. Oh God, Rich, Ri- will Richard Burton be discussed on this show? Probably. Oh, hope so. I mean, this this would be a good one. To, spy who came in from the cold would be a good one to do. But I kind of want to talk about stuff he did with Liz Taylor just because it's insane. And <laughs> who's afraid of G- Virginia Woolf is an absolute oh. masterclass of acting. Oh God, Mike Nichols is a fucking god! Yes. <laughs> Damn it, man. Um, it's not my favorite of his films, but I love Virginia Woolf, not just from the filmmaking perspective, but also the balls it must have taken to get that movie oh, made. God. Period. It must have been that, an absolute nightmare in the edit suite. You, you'd just be like, no, no, you, you can't show that. <laughs> you can't show that. What, the, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Are you trying to ruin Warner Brothers? And the editor's like, yes. <laughs> just keeps just keeps chopping away. And it's, now, what's funny is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf ultimately isn't the movie that breaks the studio of its notions. It's going to be <laughs> Bonnie and Clyde, but that's a stepping stone. Um, I mean, like at least from the perception. I think one of the reasons this show covers pre-1968 cinema is because 68's where the cracks become supremely mm. unrepairable and the damage is permanent. It becomes the new Hollywood, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And Scorsese comes out of his egg and says, now it's my time to shine. <laughs> Spielberg comes out with his baseball cap and he's all set to go. George Lucas comes out with his space toys. And Brian Francis De Palma. Cor- yeah, Brian De Palma I comes out and goes. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> I love Hitchcock. You know how I'm gonna show you I love Hitchcock. Obsession. Just watch my yes obsession. <laughs> hey, hey, you want to watch a Mission Impossible movie where it's basically North by Northwest? You're welcome. <laughs> anybody who asks for that. You want to watch 
You want to watch a Prohibition era movie that kind of looks like The Man Who Knew Too Much? Here you go. You're welcome, America. <laughs> Brian De Palma here to save your goddamn day. <laughs> oh, my God. And then Francis Ford Coppola had some wine and whatever and went crazy in the jungle. <laughs> That's... At a wedding party. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, which wedding do we all prefer? The one in The Godfather or the one in The Deer Hunter? One's longer and probably more elegant, but one has Marlon Brando walking around in fat. And I <laughs> and I prefer the one with Marlon Brando walking around. Um, <laughs> but uh, that does not excuse uh, a love of Chiquino, though. He, uh, the movie of his I still haven't seen is the one that broke his career. Heaven's Gate. <laughs> yeah, I still have never seen amazing. Heaven's Gate. It is a I, really, really good film. It's undeserved of its reputation. You're not the only one to tell me this. Super. And I, I have this backlog. That's one of them. But um, but anyway, uh, to get it back to the '60s. So like anyway, Claire Bloom's character in this film, Theodora, challenges a lot of like breaks a lot of taboos, especially for a horror movie too, a genre that is known for breaking said taboos, and arguably has broken these taboos before, but never. On such a scale as this, um, I mean, Kev, you're you're a Universal monster nut like yep. I am. I'm assuming mm-hmm. you've seen Dracula's Daughter, yes, and that's that's an explicit uh, lesbian subtext <laughs> steaming throughout <laughs> yes. that movie, um, which. Uh, th- that and then there's cat people. Obviously, has a lot of sexual undertones to it. Not necessarily lesbian, but you can you can. Put whatever portrait in there that you want. Definitely um, more so in the 1980 remake by, by Paul Schrader. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's <laughs> that. There's David Bowie putting out fire with gasoline uh, in there, too. That, that movie's got a... Yes. Oh, God. Uh, God. That The first time I ever heard that song, because I didn't see the movie until after this, was in uh, Inglorious Bastards oh, right. when, they play that, yeah. when they play that song as Shoshana's walking through, and I'm just yeah. like, this song is so out of place, and I fucking love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's it's why I'm just, a genius! <laughs> it's just the same in Cat People as well. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna, I've, I've gotta, I'm gonna pop that Schrader. I need to do that and the OG Cat People back-to-back, and um, just not... Not because I think I'll be benefited from it. I just kind of want to do it. Um, yeah. <laughs> like just kind of like, yeah, I've got nothing else to do. It's when I come home from night. work. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a night of batshit nonsense, yes. and I love it. Um, and so also we have Richard Johnson, who I'm not unfamiliar with him, but I feel like it always takes me a while to remember who the hell he is because um, he's in Zombie 2. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Zombie in, Flesh Eaters. I love yep, him in that. He's, He's in Screamers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and um, something also... I've never seen, something I've never seen, but I want to see him in is The Great Alligator. <laughs> <laughs> this looks... Is that the one from the early 80s? This, is, yes. So this is 1979, right. Sergio Martino, uh, filmed in Sri Lanka and Italy. Yes. Um, I've seen has, it as yeah. a hotel based on... Um, like a, a swamp kind of thing, and the alligator is picking off the guests throughout the film. Ooh, and nice. the local tribesmen are just like saying, You can't do anything because it's the holy alligator. It's <laughs> absolutely insane. You'll love it. Oh, God. The, one of the things that I picked up within criteria, uh, within um, when we had a quarantine 
effect in here. Um, Severin had a booth um, in Illinois, and my co-host, my my co-host Brad, went to Illinois to see Evil Dead at the drive-in, and he picked up for me the Changeling, uh, <gasps> Lost the Lost Souls documentary. Yes, um, which that Richard I fucking Stanley. love, Richard. Oh, <sighs> oh my God! I sent it to you for um, uh, the Film Guff Urine Review. I, I should have clarified that list was for my favorite discoveries of just like I wasn't expecting this and Richard Stanley returning was something I you could not have I could not have guessed that a mile away you could have like you could have been all in rights to shoot me for not guessing that correctly because I'm just like I thought he was in the woods yeah and apparently he's not he's back and he's working with Nicolas Cage and that's the appropriate thing to do um but uh, yes uh, that documentary but the other one was Zombie Three which. I've never seen, but I know the production history of it um, because of them having to pick it up after. <laughs> like, that's a crazy. I, I maybe I maybe I should do a spinoff on on Italian horror because that's a whole wonderful genre in and of itself. Um, but Johnson, though, it's interesting because I guess my first exposure to him technically would have been. Um, uh, the Boy in the Striped Pajamas. That's going to sound oh, super right. strange, but that's a no? 2008 film mm. where he plays Grandpa. Yeah. And um, that movie is super sad. So um, it's it's got Asa Butterfield, uh, Aja Butterfield in it and David Thelwes and Vera Farmiga. And that's all I'm going to say because I don't want to cry right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's also in Laura Croft Tomb Raider, which I've still never seen. Um, and uh, he, but he's had this, interesting varied career where he god bless him doesn't seem to work to be comfortable he does like to kind of dig into the dirt and challenge himself Mm. um not the least of which is working in italian cinema which you know i mean unlike unlike rick dalton he was more than willing to just dive in (laughs) yes um and uh the uh, the thing that I note about it on the on the commentary is that out of all the people talking in that commentary, he is the one who is basically doing his own podcast in the early 2000s because he is. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not just production facts, Kev. It's opinions. It's acting 101. <laughs> it's, it is old man talking about how good the old days were. <laughs> Going like now today's cinema is super fast and super convoluted, but here you're allowed to sit and enjoy yourself and relax. <laughs> it's kind of like listening to Timothy Dalton and Hot Fuzz in a in a weird way. Like it just the inflection in his voice. I'm just like you're about to murder somebody in your supermarket. <laughs> um, but um, and then last but not least, we have. Um, uh, Dean Martin Light, <laughs> Mr. Russ Tamblin. <laughs> oh, amazing. Get me a cocktail. Now, <laughs> oh, God. Now, he has appeared in such films as Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Um, he was in Peyton Place, where he got an Oscar nomination for Supporting Actor. And then he was in High School Confidential and Tom Thumb. Uh, and then he's in West Side Story. Mm-hmm. And he's also in The War of the Gargantuas, which is a film that I've never seen. I but love I want to see that. <laughs> oh, God. And it's an Ishiro Honda film. So former guest uh, Henry Jarvis will have already seen this. So I'm going to text him first before I, <laughs> before I even try. Um, but he also ended up doing a lot of exploitation films in the 70s and working as a choreographer in the 80s. 
But then he comes back into big, big prominence, really, uh, as Dr. Jacoby in Twin Peaks. Lawrence Jacoby. Um, oh, yeah. man. Now, and now I'm I'm a Twin Peaks watcher. I still have not seen The Return, but I know he comes back for it. Yes. So there's going to be a day where I turn off my Twitter, my Instagram, mm. my Facebook, and I shut off any electronic that isn't necessary, and I just embrace all of Twin Peaks in a single setting. And then we'll see if I come out sane on the other end of it. Well, <laughs> um, if you watch Lawrence Jacoby's YouTube channel that he has on the new series, and he runs a podcast as well. Um, say, will... say what again, Kev? He's... What did you just say? Yes, yes. <laughs> he's embraced the whole technology thing. Uh, he's become a media node. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> Given Honestly. what we're going to talk about with him in The Haunting? <laughs> it, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. This, because Luke in The Haunting is is very, very um ambitious. Yes. And flippant. And could feasibly be Elon Musk, except probably more humane. And <laughs> Possibly. Well, yeah, the no. thing is, as well, he actually does a uncredited um, appearance in the Netflix series, the 2018 series. Um, now he's, of Hill he's not as Luke, but is there. And it's really funny because I always think, he's actually playing a psychiatrist in this, so is he playing Luke or is he playing Lawrence? Mm. Ah, the big questions. That's that's Mike Flanagan going like, "Look, I'm gonna <laughs> fuck, I'm gonna fuck with Kev Moore <laughs> because I know he'll never watch it after the first fifteen minutes. Yeah, but I'm gonna give him something so tempting that Damn. he won't." <laughs> Damn you! <laughs> you just you just see Mike Flanagan somewhere, like sifting the air and going like inhaling the fumes, going like, "That's frustration. That's frustration. <laughs> That's frustration coming across the channel." Um, um, and actually, he's also in a television version of Inherit the Wind, which I I believe I've seen. Oh um, if I'm looking at this one correctly. Um, yes, this is the one with Jack Lemon and George C. Scott. Yeah, he's in that. Um, I didn't realize uh, he was Ed Morris in that. That's interesting. I'll have to go back to that. Um, but he's also, um, t- to modern audiences who are below mine and Kev's age, he's also known as the father of Amber Tamplin, uh, who was in such things as the Sisterhoods of the Travel and Pants and is now married to David Cross. So there you go with that information. <laughs> David Cross. Um, wow. I love David Cross. Yeah. <laughs> he's just in every film. He's, he's, uh, but you know what's funny? Like, uh, there are certain films that I've watched in the course of this series where my only response is Tobias's line in Arrested <laughs> Development after he's gotten back from the pirate ship and goes, What an adventure, gang. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing that I can fo- fall back on. Um, and I've dutifully seen a good chunk of those Alvin and the Chipmunks movies, and I just wish, I just, I, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you, I'm glad he has money. Anyway, yeah. um, we're gonna go back so to the. That we don't have to. Yes, exactly. Like you, you are getting chipwrecked, so I don't have to. <laughs> um, uh, but so anyway, all these wonderful character actors that I've gone on side tangents on, uh, they are all in the haunting, and uh, it's really comprised of this cast so we have julie harris claire bloom richard johnson russ tamblin 
And then you have Faye Compton. Uh, you have Rosalie Crutchley, Ro- Lois Maxwell, Valentine Dial, Diane Clare, and Ronald Adam playing characters that barely pop in and out of this movie, um, at, like small sections of it. Now, this film was also shot under interesting technical circumstances, as we've um, discussed. Um, Eddington Park, uh, in the grounds that are near the village of Eddington, Wickshire, Warwickshire, were used for the exteriors of Hill House. Now, before we do any deep dive into the plot, I know we're taking forever, but we'll get there. Yeah, Trust me. Kev, sh- Kev sent me a link, <laughs> which proved very helpful to the whole Graham scheme of the haunting because as we discussed at the top, a lot of the haunting has to do with, is this all in your mind? Is this place actually haunted? Is this a crock of shit? And um, for for anybody who's... I'm going to link this article, but explain basically the the what Eddington Park is all about. Well, it's, it's a place that's actually being... Um, Eddington Park has been a place since the Doomsday Book. It's in the Doomsday Book. So it's going back to the late 15th century. Um, okay. So it's been there for a long, 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 long time. Now, the Eddington Park that we know now, the building was reconstructed in the mid-1800s. Um, and mm-hmm. this is where you get that wonderful gothic structure and it is now a grade one listed building which means that nobody nobody can touch it um you can't so much as put a new drain pipe on it it's got so to be... so covid can't so covid can't run it out of business is what Absolutely you're telling no me no chance no okay <laughs> um oh, shit we gotta close that indian park <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this fucking virus! <laughs> it, it became a, it. It only became. It's a hotel now, but it only became a hotel in 1967. So before that, wow. it was actually privately owned. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh my god! So basically, the debate around this is that is this haunted? Actually haunted? <laughs> yes. Well, there's a, um, if you look on the article from the BBC that yeah. I've linked you to, the first response is. From a descendant of the original Shirley family that owned the house. And she says that it's not haunted. It was a lovely place to live. And I'd possibly go with her because if anybody's going to know, it's going to be people that actually did actually know the place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Somebody who, who has been in the building and has stayed there in an extended period of time and nothing bad's happened to them. I'm going to take their authority on it because so far they're the longest ones to survive in there. So either A, it's not haunted, or B, they made a pact with the devil. And either way, <laughs> either way, they, they it's going to be very hard for you to prove your theory. Now, when we talk about hauntings in the state side, there's a lot of sensationalism around the various different cases. And a lot of our... Really, a lot of our sensationalism of it starts with Amityville, um, amongst other things, where yeah. that the, the Amityville case becomes huge. You have Ed and Lorraine Warren coming in to investigate it. And I'm fully aware that Ed and Lorraine Warren are controversial figures when they're not being played by Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga. Um, but regardless, they are very important to uh, the legacy of that. And also 
purporting the myth or the legend of Amityville. Um, cause I'm not a skeptic. Um, I'm, um, I'm, I'm hard to, I'm hard to budge, but I'll believe if you, if you show it. Cause like, I can't believe that there's not a ghost mainly because I want to come back and haunt people if possible. You and me <laughs> are possibly on the same level as Luke in the film. Yeah. That's kind of why much. I love him. Yes. Because I'm like, oh, he's my, he's, he's my proxy character. I can, yeah. I can walk through Russ Tamblin's eyes, except I don't have the swagger or the hairstyle. <laughs> I mean, like, the looks and it's style. <laughs> oh, it's hard to match that glorious head of hair that Russ Tamblin has. Damn like it fine. is like, it, dude, like it is, it is, I'm in the sixties, get fucking used to it. Um, <laughs> I mean, the late fifties, early sixties, get used to it he because it like also kind of. He looks like he would be perfect in the Rat Pack. Yes, yes, the unofficial member. Russ. Yes, yes, you know, like who replaces Peter Lawford after he has that falling out with them. <laughs> yeah, um, and, then, and then Frank gets angry because JFK doesn't do shit for him. I the Rat Pack's history is just as terrifying as the haunting. Um, <laughs> Possibly but it also more. has. Oh God! So so many spirits flowing through the, the history of the Rat Pack. <laughs> yep. Speaking of which, that joke will come into play here. Um, but so the, the the exteriors are shot at Eddington, um, and according to Russ Tamblin, Wise approached a society that kept track of British haunted houses that gave him a list of such places, and this is the one that production designer Elliot Scott found. Um, the interiors are shot at the MGM British Studios in Boreham Hamwood, Hertfordshire. The, <laughs> hey, that's a mouthful. Shall I translate that, It's Boreham Wood at Hertfordshire. Uh, Boreham Wood, Hertfordshire. Okay, thank you. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Get the thi- I think this is why we do it, so that people that aren't from Britain can't actually find their way around. You know, where is Worcestershire? No, that's supposed to yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for being good ambassadors uh, to, interna- to to international territories beyond your own borders. It's a lesson that I wish a lot of people here would fucking learn. Anyway, <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, and the but the interior of this 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 MGM British studio is not small. Oh, um, no, <laughs> and, and it's um and MGM this studio was held prior and I must say they get a lot out of here for a studio era film in a way that doesn't make it feel too studio bound. Um, I like, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that this film has scale to it. That's believable on a location shoot aesthetic. Yeah. And I'm sure that a lot of that has to do with the way the exteriors are shot, but Something about it makes it feel like I'm in this actual house. A lot of that has to do with the production design of Elliot Scott, who basically made a demented palace. It's a masterclass. Yeah. Interestingly, they um, did a special anniversary. Um, I don't know what anniversary it was, but a showing of the haunting at, in 2010 at um, Effington Towers. Effington Towers. Uh, the, what year was this? Uh, 2010. <laughs> and um, Richard Johnson went to do a talk there. And uh-huh. he said it was the very first time he'd actually been inside the hall. <laughs> and that's when he said, and it will be the last time. 
<laughs> That's when he shut the doors <laughs> and said, we're all going to hell tonight, ladies and gentlemen. But, for, but first, the movie, I respect Robert's work. Um, uh, that's amazing. That's a that's kind of like watching the best comparison you have for something like that is watching The Shining at the Stanley Hotel here in Colorado. Um, yeah. Which not only that, um, I don't know how familiar you are with this, but the Stanley Hotel had a Stanley Ho- Horror Film Festival for a little while. The film school that I went to, the director of that film school led that festival during its existence. It then disappeared. And I'm not going to make any allusions or connections, but sort of makes sense. But that festival was responsible for premiering some uh, uh, mid-2010 horror films that ended up getting some popularity. So um, there's there's a there's a uh, an impetus for showing the horror films inside a place of evil so to speak Hmm. um now i don't think you go any further when it comes to colorado history like nobody watches unsinkable molly brown or titanic inside molly brown's house to my knowledge um but that would be cool i'd watch titanic challenge i i i think it would be very cramped covid in covid time (laughs) pre-covid era i think people would be high enough to do it um (laughs) that's that's what weed was made for um but yeah, like so, the Eddington, uh, the the Edding, Eddington Park has a history behind it that then lends an authenticity to the haunting. But there are a lot of uses where Eddington and the edifice of Hill House is done in um, a mat mattish matted style, um, which. There's a lot of stuff that alluded back to me to Citizen Kane, where Robert Wise must have been looking at the outlay of Xanadu and going like, well, I can steal from Morrison's playbook a little bit Mm -hmm. Um, because the house is a character in the film. Um, As a, as alluded in the commentary, the house has eyes. Um, It, it looks down on the characters, the way the, the characters look in on it. And the house is alive. Literally. It also, again, extends to the conversation of like, well, is this movie in her mind or is it a ghost story? And it's like, it's both guys. You just need to not overthink it. Um, until it demands you to think about it. Um, and, the interesting thing about the production design of this film is that everything was instructed to be designed askew so that it would be slightly off um, off kilter. Um, and the, the, there's a, there, there, all the rooms are, have ceilings that are designed to create a claustrophobic effect. Basically, Wise is saying, I want this house to scare the shit out of my actors. Um, or to make them feel uneasy walking yep. around in it. And if you notice in the film as we go along, angle angles are everything. It's almost like oh. a form of subtle German expressionism playing throughout. There's obvious forms of it, but then when even if it's just a character in a dialogue scene, you see in the back a mirror is tilted. It reminded me of trying to elevate Caligari to subtleism, which is hard because Caligari <laughs> it wears angles on its face. Um, and the additional factor of this is that in order to amp up the askewness of this film, uh, there's there's innovation in technology when it comes to the camera. So Robert Wise was like, what's, what's wider than a 
35 millimeter lens. And he went up to one of his buddies and one of his buddies said, well, I got a 28 millimeter lens, which had not been properly developed at the time. Uh, and he's like, well, let me have it. And he's like, no, it's not ready, Bob. He's like, I want that fucking lens. And he's like, but it's not ready yet, Bob. <laughs> Stop grabbing at it. Yep. <laughs> and so they agreed to let him use the lens as long as he signed a promissory note saying like, I, Robert Wise, do solemnly swear that I am aware <laughs> yet that this that this lens is imperfect and untested. And the guy who loaned him the lens must have kind of sat in his chair after watching The Haunting and going like, oh, my note was unnecessary. <laughs> because, because there's virtually nothing in the film that suggests that the lens is imperfect or out of focus or out of skew. It's either um, that or he's actually just watched it and cried all the way through the film going, but all the walls look warped. What is going on? <laughs> he he didn't use it properly. And also, I'm just terrified. Maybe I'm in Hill House. <laughs> I do oh, like, God. I do like Who's the Who's holding that... my hand? <laughs> <laughs> I do like um, the fact that this kind of echoes the innocence in a way because Jack mm -hmm. Cardiff actually had a halo around his lens the outside outer edge of his uh, lens were all sort of mushy he he put vaseline on the lens to make everything a soft focus on the outer edge so it's yeah. kind of got that weird sort of claustrophobic feel there as well yeah it's got the 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 way that many folks around my neck of the woods might refer to it as the fisheye lens yes um which um the first time i've noticed it within recent cinema like outwardly and just Unafraid was the favorite by uh, Yorgos Lanthimos, um, which that's not the weirdest thing Yorgos has ever done. Um, but <laughs> it's the not. weirdest thing he's done. With, it's the weirdest thing he's done with the camera. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you've never seen Dogtooth, oh. watch watch Dogtooth and then punch me afterwards. I love that movie. Yeah, it's hard can, to recommend you to can people. Punch him afterwards and then call it a banana. Yeah, exactly. Um, or the lobster, which might <laughs> oh, frustrate yes. you. Which might frustrate you if you're rude, because like I, I, I love the ending of the lobster. I understand why it would frustrate somebody. It's so romantic. <laughs> oh yeah, such 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 romance blossoming <laughs> as he decides to duck out of that bathroom, <laughs> leave her, leave her alone. Um, but uh, anyway, that fisheye lens look and that aesthetic. Uh, brings a sense of, like I said, claustrophobia and also the askew nature. Like, Robert Wise is trying to find further ways to terrify people on a budget or on a minimalist scale. As he has said openly, this is very much a tribute to Val Luton, um, the producer, um, and... His wise said that Luton's theory of horror was that people are most afraid of the unknown than things they could see. And so the decision to show little that was supernatural was made very early on in the picture's pre-production. This film has no violence in it. No. Or no um no go. No phys no physical violence. No. I guess we should say. Um now there is a hanging, um, but that's you know, that's, that's kind that's of like, screen to a certain extent though. Yeah, and it's in the corner, yeah. and um, again, beautifully it, framed. Yep, beautifully framed, 
very askew. Mm. Definitely not House on Haunted Hill uh, people hanging around. Definitely. Um, but that's a but that's a different joy in my heart, and I have to separate the two because I like watching Vincent Price scare the shit out of people in his own house. Yes. Because um, uh, who doesn't? But this uh, particular film relies on that and atmosphere. Yeah. Um, now, we've seen a resurgence of atmospheric horror, and as we dive into this plot, which we're about to do now, um, it's interesting that the haunting predicts a lot of what we've seen in the last, not even five years, but ten years, in terms of low-budget horror yep. or um, attempts to hit that PG-13 rating without becoming... Uh, a J horror knockoff, or a um, uh, uh, an attempt to just catch on to the teen market without having to worry about the rating. Like, um, uh, uh, Osgood Perkins is a good go-to for this. Um, and he does it both in his follow-up film, but his first his first big film that I noticed it in, which was The Black Coat's Daughter, where he utilizes a lot of atmospheric horror horror in it. Um, I don't know if it's called February over there or if it's still called Black Coat's Daughter, but um, that's uh, that's a good film. February if... over here. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Oh, wow. So we just we got the dumb title. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind that title, but February works better for the movie. Mm. Um, and uh, but uh, and also James Wan has done it on a commercial scale. And what's yes. interesting about The Haunting is that this is a studio horror movie, not done on a low budget, really. A million dollars in the 60s is a million dollars in the 60s. It's a hell of a lot of money. Yeah. Now, considering that, like, Hitchcock made Psycho for... Uh, 28 bucks. Six, yeah, 28. <laughs> I made it for a sandwich, <laughs> a cup of coffee. <laughs> I went over to the back lot, and I said, like, guys, if you could bring your own Lunchables, that'd be fucking dope. Well, I mean, I let's, face enough- it. <laughs> let's face it. He did use all his crew from um, Hitchcock the television Presents anyway. <laughs> Yeah, he's just like, well, I want to do this run and gun. How ca- how can I make this even more challenging for myself? I know, untested crewmen on feature films. <laughs> Let's see what they come up with. Alma, don't fucking look at me like that. We're going to take fucking risks because I'm fucking tired of putting Cary Grant into weird situations. He's done with it. I'm done with it. Um. No, yeah. So he he does that on a low end scale. The birds comes out this same year. Yep. Ends up doing it on a, a bigger budget scale because Universal's like, okay, you did all this with Psycho. You could do do it with this. We all know what happened with that. I'm not going to go back into the birds. But this movie comes out in the same year, and it is decidedly less uh, obvious and on the nose than Hitchcock's The Birds is. Both with dealing in atmospheric horror to their own devices. Yep. Wise is much more artsy about it. Um, and that's pr- evident slightly after the opening images because we get a very traditional horror opening with the credits. Um, we get a voiceover from uh, Dr. Markway. Yes. <laughs> explaining, it, like setting us up for like, you're in for some scary shit. Which is gorgeous. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's lovely. And I do like that this opening of the movie, uh, it's, it is the exposition dump. He really but is. Um, Dr. Markway throughout is pretty much Basil Exposi- Exposition for the most part. <laughs> Thank you for referencing Austin Powers. 
You're welcome. But every It's not your mother, Basil, it's a man, baby. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's done. That's not coming but, back, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> but every time he's on, he's pretty much um exposi- expository. Um yes. you know, his dialogue tends to be that. But to not to his detriment either, because everything that he says actually takes place somewhere in the film or has yep. some bearing. Not only that, he believes it. He oh, yeah. do, does truly believe it. Something that's interesting about Dr. Marquay, Dr. John Marquay specifically, is that he started off as an anthropologist major but was interested in the paranormal and thought, well, say, I can combine these two and create mm-hmm. quite unemployment for myself. Call and, me John. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I, well, and it's later in the film, but he's just like, I didn't want to be a practical man. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like well, you certainly succeeded. Yep. <laughs> then, Win-win. Um, but, but yes, he, he believes this so much that he gives us a good detail of this. And what I like about this exposition also is is that the ghosts in this film are never explained. There is no tangible explanation for why the house of Hill House is haunted. It is just because ghosts. That's the that's the subtitle yeah, for this episode. Because it, ghosts. <laughs> that's it. He kind of just tries to explain it away by saying it's just an ugly house. Yeah, exactly. Like that. No, no, nobody would try to live in that house. No. I mean, Hugh Crane, Hugh Crane, for all of his madness, was <laughs> ultimately a shitty interior designer. <laughs> <laughs> just making everything askew. Just deciding that his children needed really very fucking weird Bibles to read. <laughs> Today's oh, Bible oh. lesson. Oh, oh, oh my God! That book, Jesus! <laughs> the illust, the illustrations in it are like they are definitely not the- Ladybird. Yeah, no, no, not Ladybird. <laughs> and if anybody, if anybody's watched Borat's subsequent movie film, oh, when they that. talk about the book that Borat gives his daughter. <laughs> Yes. It's on the same level of disturbing, but one film is trying to scare me and the other one's trying to make me burst out laughing in my chair. Um, but the <laughs> same same creepiness. And, um, but Look out which one. Did it, okay, oh, oh uh, it's... <laughs> I think it's every... I think... I think... I think Borat's one scares me more. Um, just be... But mm. only because of where we've been the last four years. Yes, the outtakes. Now that being said... The now, now are give, terrifying. Me, give me give me a couple of years when we've eliminated the Nazis again, and then I'll maybe tell you something different. But <laughs> until then, <laughs> until then, Borat may be slightly scarier than the haunting for one scene. And um, but so the haunting of Hill House starts with Hugh Crane. This he uh, this <laughs> I'm not sure what he is. Is he an aristocrat or is he <laughs> like he's uh. He's He's very rich. (laughs) He's an eccentric. Yes, definitely. Um, I think that's a profession over here. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. No. Here in America, you can be eccentric and be a billionaire. It's. It's very. It's very. Very easy. You can. You can make Teslas. You can be bald. (laughs) That look like they're made by PlayStation One. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You can. Oh my God. There's so many billionaires here we could just knock off the crane. <laughs> that, 
Hugh Crane, though, started them all. Um, and he built this this hill house as a home for his wife. And before she could get to the house for the first time, a carriage crashed against a tree and she died. <laughs> and I love the way that crash is filmed because it's um, so, not Hitchcockian, but it's deliberate like Hitchcock where each cut is very specific in order to give you the impression of a crash without... Well, there's a, a particular shot that I noticed only today because I watched it again and went, oh my God, there's a shot of the carriage wheel as the carriage comes to settle and you've just got mm-hmm. the wheel re- turning. And the wheel stops and there's actually a broken spoke on the wheel. Oh, I didn't even notice that in the rewatch. Jesus. That is, that's some detail. That is a great detail to just leave it on. You know, just the that's, fact that you've got this broken spoke that just says a lot about what the situation is. Every every frame is accounted for. Exactly. And like, and that's what actually, that's something Richard Johnson alludes to. He's like, you know, everybody's mm. watched this film and they've dissected it frame by frame, but sounding <laughs> indignant about it, by the way. And I, um, but like, it's not without warrant because Wise thought out everything. That is a very um, that's that I, that that is a very Hitchcockian element to it in terms of that preparedness. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if storyboards had detailed in Robert's mind. And also, the thing to always keep in mind: Robert Wise is an editor, not yes. first, but it's embedded in him. As well as that, to don't the- forget that Robert Wise has worked in sound design before this as well, which will come into play, which we'll talk about later, but oh, yes. And, and by coming into play, you mean making me pee my pants. <laughs> yeah. And that's true. Yeah. <laughs> and that's true. That's true, Kev. Yes. I'm going to pee my pants yeah. and it's going to happen again. Um, But yes, yeah, so she, the wife dies, R.I.P. Uh, crane number one. Uh, and then Crane remarries. <laughs> crane number one. <laughs> Hugh Crane, you have the choice between crane number one, crane number two, or crane number three. Oh, 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 oh. Um, I'll pick uh, the door where after the second wife, I go fucking nuts and leave my daughter alone. Oh, um, uh, is that door available, Monty? Um, no, um, the second wife he gets dies in the house from falling down the stairs. And it's actually a very nice, like, very quick shot. And you know, Mark, Doctor Marquay is like, we don't know why she died, um, but like, but uh, much to the much to the benefit of Hill House for it remaining a mystery. So he's like, it's interesting in his monologue, he's basically reveling in like, oh, I love the fact that nothing's answerable. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's 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 very much like a person watching art house cinema going like, oh, I love that they don't give it to you spoon fed. <laughs> <laughs> the the art house is a ter- the, the the hill house is a Terrence Malick movie for him. Um, he's like, oh, I love having to read into it, and the daughter is then left in the nursery, which uh, is a brilliant shot. Oh yeah, very brilliant. We establish that she is basically left there virtually alone her entire life. Um, uh eventually as she's older there's a caretaker that comes to take care of her um and her nurse companion gal um uh it was very f- falling short on her duties cuz 
Much much like a camp counselor at Crystal Lake, <laughs> she goes to make off with a boy <laughs> and leaves Abigail Crane banging her crane against the bed going like, fucking help, I'm dying. Um, and alas, this caretaker cannot hear her and therefore R.I.P. Abigail Crane. Uh, the companion then inherits the house. But um, as is explained through the monologue, as she has inherited the house. She becomes uneasy in the house. And we see this wonderful, beautiful spiral staircase uh, shot where we are moving with the staircase as she goes up the spiral staircase in the library. And then from a, from a angle looking down, we see out of the corner of the frame, uh, the companion uh, having hung herself. And all we see is the dangling of her feet up till about, the upper torso ish. Yep. Um, I want to say, um, and that spiral staircase moving, they had to specifically rig that. That was one of the first times they were able to rig a camera to move within that smallest space. Cause they're having to put it on the rail to go up with it. Um, and a staircase that narrow is going to be very difficult to do that with. Um, that's not the only thing that has, um, innovation with this staircase or at the very least uh proper safety precautions um because the staircase is a modern marvel i mean yeah, the, the rail marvel. itself is actually designed to clip the camera to it which mm-hmm. is quite so a clever the, item yep and so then that way you can actually get those tight shots which again like at this point we're starting to really move the camera into places it's never been before for point of view um innovative like distinguished techniques that will push the limits of cinema um i don't know if i would say that robert wise is like innovating it fully here but he's throwing so much into it this can't not be one of the most influential films Mm. to come out of the 60s um and it is interesting how the 60s has ended up being this conduit for the 70s where at the very least the tech is uh then carried on into the next decade yeah um and then embellished upon further um but so the companion dies and the hill house is now left to mrs sanderson um but it's stood empty for some time because i guess basically she's trying to decide whether or not to let john dr john marquay uh, investigate this house or whether she should give it to her <laughs> her playboy <laughs> distant relative <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> which I guess is a tough choice to make when you when it comes right down to it I, I would love to give Russ Tamblin a house but you know there's uh, there's a lot of other things that uh, that need to occur and also I got the impression that Mrs. Sanderson when she finally decides to let Luke uh, to give John Dr. Marquay the permission, she's basically thinking in her head, oh, I know how to scare the shit out of my uh, <laughs> out of my nephew. I know how to give Luke a taste of his own medicine. I mean, yes, John, D- John, take him, but be aware he will cheat you out of your money with cards. Like I he's... loved, yes. I loved yeah. the, the, the casting of the old, older lady, um, because mm-hmm. she actually looks like she could have been a descendant of the Abigail. Yeah, you know she does have. She's got that resemblance. 
Yeah, she does. And she's not without her own legacy because um, mm. Faye Compton was Countess Helga von Stahl in Waltzes from Vienna, <laughs> everybody's favorite Hitchcock movie. <laughs> everybody's favorite movie about the Blue Danube. Um, and she's also in uh, Othello from 1951, Blackmailed from 1951. Um, she's in Uncle Vanya in 1963, which is the same year. Uh, she started pretty early on in shorts in 1914. Well, with she was born she in 1902, wasn't she? Yep, and she passed our realm at uh, in 1978. Oh, um, God, she was she, th- what a legacy! Yeah, what a legacy from Hitchcock to Wise. Um, uh, she uh, <laughs> this is funny. In 1922, she married Leon Quartermain. Um, <laughs> and uh, Quartermain <laughs> has a very different connotation for all of us. <laughs> yeah, he became his own range of books. <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah, very much so. <laughs> and also shitty canon movies. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and uh, actually, in 1927, she opened an acting school, the Faye Compton Studio of Dramatic Art, where she continued business up until the start of World War II, where the alumni included Alec Guinness and John LeMessure. Never heard um, of them. N- no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 you've never no. heard of me at all. I, no, I, I did a movie that was then remade by two brothers and starred Tom Hanks. That's about it. And nothing else. Uh, absolutely nothing else. Certainly nothing that made me want to shake children for being so stupid. The not the um, films you're looking for. No. Oh. 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 I'll get me Kev, Kev. Kev, this is Alec Guinness. I'm gonna drop the charade. This is this was that was a wonderful joke. And if anybody gives you shit for it, you need to tell them that Alec Guinness told them to go fuck themselves. Um, and so all this anyway. while the, com- the companion fooled around with the uh, farm hand on the veranda. <laughs> we could go. I'll need to move on, or else I'm gonna ste- keep. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but anyway, um, the so Marquay is given permission, and he's very passionate about you know going in for the for the experiment. Will there be girls? Um, yeah. Will there be girls? Well, he, well, he's got to go down a list. Which, by the way, I made a I, I made a note here. The, no, the, um, the the list of names is incredible. Yes, and this is the big note I have. This is a really big note. Theodora has a question mark? Yes. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because that's What was the hesitation here? She's like Cher. She just goes by Theodora. That's it. <laughs> like, well, I or guess there's Kylie. no best. Yeah, this is... Is this like when Prince has his... I know Prince doesn't exist yet, but is this like when Prince has his symbol thing uh, going that's on? That's right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's Theodora it's like a, slash question mark. Oh, because God. question mark so, came in later on in her career. Oh, exactly. Oh, there oh, when go. she started getting fil- when she started getting philosophical. And, uh, well, um, when she all- started getting shit from Warner Brothers. Oh, yeah, exactly. And go. that's also and that's and then this and eventually led her to ghostwriting <laughs> scripts for the latter seasons of Mash with Alan Alda. <laughs> yes. And every everything became way too maudlin, and everybody said, "What about Doctors Laughing?" Um, <laughs> and. But th- but among the names, among the names that is the most important. In fact, it's really the only important name because 
Theodora is the other important name. All the other ones decided, like, fuck that shit. I ain't going to Hill House. And yeah. fuck you, Markway. What the fuck do you? No, no, <laughs> I'm no. I've just read up on this. <laughs> this like, is not look, a go. We don't. I have 60s version of Wikipedia. It's called a newspaper, <laughs> and I've seen clippings. And no, it's not happening. I have a mimeograph. And... <laughs> a mimeograph. <laughs> I saw slides at the <laughs> library. I cruised there. Before I went to my newspaper slide porn, I went to, <laughs> I went to news clippings about Hill House, and I said, I'm not going there. Um, but the other name on here that is very important is uh, none other than Eleanor Lance or Nell. Yep. And and as we enter on Nell's living establishment, uh, she is living with her sister and oh her and her sister's husband. And um, she uh, is being told she can't use the car. Uh, and uh, now this scene, this is the only scene in the movie where I questioned the score of the film, which is an otherwise perfect score. This is on um, my notes as well. So the scene plays out like a teenager whining about how she doesn't get the car, and the music doubles down on that fact, whereas I'd prefer that the score didn't exist for this. Yes, scene. the music sounds like it's incidental music from a Bugs Bunny feature that wasn't released. <laughs> To the point where she actually gets annoyed with it and turns it off herself. <laughs> I knew I should have taken a left turn at Eddington Park. <laughs> uh, is he? St- is the ghost still there, Daffy? Still lurking about. <laughs> oh, you're right. That is that is a great comparison. And what's more, the performance of the sister and her husband double down on that too. Because the well, first of all, her sister's a bitch. Yeah. Um, and I and I don't like using that word because it can be denigrating. But let's face it, she is a bitch, mm-hmm. and uh, she is a horrible person. And her husband is a little bit more or less like, no, 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 dear. Um, maybe you're being too harsh on your sister. And the big part of Eleanor's background is that she has spent her adult life taking care of an invalid mother, who then has recently passed away, and she feels guilt about this. We'll find out why a little bit further into the story. But right now, all that is known is that she has not left her mother's care or her sister's house since the death. And all she wants is for something to happen to her. And she, she's and she's living in her sister's living room. Yeah, she's basically which, taking that as her bedroom. And yeah. when you look at the design of that living room, you think, oh my God. How this hasn't driven you seven shades of crazy already, I don't know. Oh, I, I mean, like, at last, something's about to happen to these drapes, and you can just start cutting them. Bit by bit. <laughs> I, like, I, it's, 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 it's an atrocious-looking room. It room. is. And I'm like, uh, and look, I'm not an interior designer. And People neither might are have they. Seen, <laughs> yeah, but, but people have seen photos of the shelves that are like hold my Blu-rays. At least I don't try to lie about my design. These guys clearly do. They're oh. like, no, no, no. This is a perfectly wonderful American home. It's and- awesome. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. But it, it's really odd as well because everything's very intricate. Um, you've mm-hmm. got crazy designs all over the place, like on the curtains and the matching drape mm-hmm. at the what you would call the drapes. You, then you've got the matching 
um, upholstery as well in the chairs. Mm-hmm. Everything is really intricate. And then this is kind of foreshadowing what you see in Hill House. Because when yeah. you go into the Purple Parlour, exactly the same mm-hmm. kind of intricacy. Although yep. it's a different kind of tone completely. Yeah, it's 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 skewed off in a diff- it's skewed off in a uh, different direction, and I like that Wise and the production designer are basically laying this throughout the whole film and not trying to build up to it. Yeah, we're we're pretty much laid into the aesthetic from ground one. Definitely, I think the only the only real normal looking place really is Mrs. Sanderson's living room, and even. You know, I mean, she's she's wealthy-ish, so yep. it's you know it's certainly not within means of anybody here recording this episode. But <laughs> I mean, well, I don't know about you. I certainly I, I live in my parents' basement. What the fuck <laughs> did I know? But um, but um, I, I'm kind of like Eleanor. You know, I want something to happen to me. Um, but not what happens to her in this movie. Um, <laughs> like I, you know, That's I'd enough. rather just I I would rather just you know have a sunny day outside. Like that's. <laughs> That seems fucking reasonable, COVID. Um, but uh, anyway, she has gotten the invitation to go to Hill House. And th- she sees this as her opportunity to get, have an, ad- not an ad- it's not like Bilbo Baggins, I'm going on an adventure. It's more just like she needs vacation. to escape. Yeah, a vacation, if you will. Mm. Um, and her her sister rejecting it is just doubling down on this feeling of entrapment that she feels and i'm going to say even though i don't like her sister her sister clearly understands to whatever a horrible degree she does that her sister is not well yeah. um but i but to what extent she knows is unclear because that character disappears right quick which is fine i don't need her um <laughs> well her uh, and her husband are only there for that scene and then that's it you never yeah. see him again yeah no he well he had to go back to the set of father knows best <laughs> <laughs> That's how this. That's how this works. And um, the uh, they're all fifties and sixties dads are all interchangeable. They literally like r- apart from Dick Van Dyke, and maybe Ward Cleaver. Pretty much everybody else is like interchangeable. Um, mm. and and no, R- Ricky Ricardo does not count because nobody can be Desi Arnaz. He's unique unto himself. Um, and uh, but anyway, she decides. Well, I don't care what they say. I'm going to take the car because it's half mine. That's the other thing she doubles down on is that she pays half the rent to live in that living room. Yeah. And she paid for half the car. And um, so she decides, well, I'm going to take the car. She has a little bit of a like <laughs> the the uh, the the parking lot attendant is kind of just like, what? <laughs> oh, <laughs> who are you? <laughs> sure. Sure. Whatever. I'm I'm hung over from the night before. Take your sister half car, whatever thing. <laughs> Excuse me. Don't mind if I vomit in a little bag, will you? Now, I've got some background on the car. Really? Yes. Now, give us the background the on this background car. The background is it's a Hillman uh, Minx. No, uh, sorry, not a Hillman Minx. A, Hill, a Hillman Husky. Now, hmm. this will be completely foreign to anybody in America because it was a British car <laughs> and it's supposed to be an American film and it's supposed to be based in Boston and they use the most British car possible. But it is actually my first memory that I can remember. 
Um, mm. I, I actually talked to, to, about this to my mum today uh, because I said, did we have a Hillman Husky? Because I'm watching this film right now and I'm sure I remember being inside that car and she says, yes, you were two years old. I says, yes, did the back door keep flying open? And she says, yes, and that is why we scrapped it. <laughs> Kev had a high-flying adventure. <laughs> Start you basically near death? <laughs> yeah, it started to mean to go on. <laughs> oh, my God, that's... Well, I mean, like... I wonder, there's something that I was going to ask you a little bit later on, especially with having uh, Julie Harris and Richard Johnson in the film. Um, Julie Harris, it sounds like her accent wavers between slightly British and slightly American. Yes. Like, it's not... Her and it's Clay, not, Claire Boom. Her Claire, yeah, Claire Bloom. Yeah. And my question was, like, do... The, I, and I thought this might pertain to haunting of hell house is like are the characters in the novel written as british and i was like i don't feel like that mm -hmm. would be particularly necessary but i thought it was interesting only because uh i mean richard johnson and faye compton uh outwardly are really the only like true and blue bricks yeah. here um that we notice take notice of um but the, and the story takes place in america now it takes place in new england so I'm like, unless there was a British car invasion as well, because we had a lot of <laughs> we had a lot of British invasions over here. We had a couple of the sixties. Yeah, we had a Dalek invasion. We had a mop top invasion. Uh, we had uh, a groovy invasion. Like I, <laughs> I, and I'm being very stereotypical as fuck, so I apologize. But the bottom line is, British culture did end up impacting America in a lot of ways. So I do wonder if cars ended up making the rounds here in the Hillman, States. Hillman, not particularly, because they could okay. really not even supply the UK because <laughs> they, were, they had so much industrial tribunal problems that they right. could hardly supply the orders in the UK at the time. So they're just like, what do you... Reginald, why are you making an American design? We can't afford this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. We, we can barely keep this although, country in stock. <laughs> although it does explain why later on you have so much safety problems with the car. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which so will maybe, become evident. Maybe Robert Wise is thinking to himself, you're like, no, I, I know this will throw some nerds in the future off <laughs> but <laughs> but listen uh, bet me out <laughs> what i'm going to go on the gamble that podcasts will never happen and, <laughs> and just put this car in here um cuz she takes that car and she drives off and the uh the voiceovers start beginning or the inner monologues in her head now this is something i will def definitely attribute to hitchcock innovating because yeah. The obviously with murder, um, which on a Shamley supplement, we will talk about murder and the transition from silent to sound for Hitch, which probably should have been in the initial series. But whatever, I'm not here to hear everybody's judgment calls. Um, <laughs> the bottom line is, is that the uh, that this inner monologue ends up being very important, not just to clarify uh, Nell, but also to really start laying into the psychological horror of it all. Definitely. Um, we would, I would venture to say most of us would find this technique hackneyed today. Um, 
even though it's still very much used. Um, not necessarily, not necessarily in horror movies as much anymore as I see, but um, I think it. I think I it mean, depends. I think it demands um, a, a higher level of act- acting as well because you got Julie Harris there. That's not only doing the inner monologue as a, a pre-record, but then yeah. she's having to act to this thing that she's not actually hearing. So she's right. having to respond and uh, and kind of make some sort of context to that and the only thing i can get close to that is bob hoskins at the end of the long good friday where you can see exactly what's going on in his mind without him saying anything on camera okay that's a that that's a deep cut and i've, <laughs> I've forgotten i've seen that movie Shit. <laughs> there was a bob Ho- there was a bob hoskins binge in my life and it, i mean obviously it started with roger rabbit but that yeah i've forgotten long good friday that but oh, I think I'm going do you see back what I mean, though? Weekend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I do see it because he's because because she is dual acting now. Yeah, there is something I wanted to bring up within that context too. It's a little jumping ahead a little bit, but Robert Wise did admit to playing sound effects back for the actors on set. I wonder if he did play a voiceover in advance for her, or if he did possible the Hitchcock thing where he does the monologue for Janet Lee in the car mm. um, because Hitchcock even did a prior recording for murder to play in order, because that's like, it's like, well, this is the way you do it, right? This is, this is how sound, <laughs> this is how sound works. Um, I'm fairly sure this is how it works. There's no reason that I could be wrong. I'm the master of suspense, but the, uh, this particular one, it looks like that, if she doesn't have it on set with her, she's doing a very, very good job at conveying both. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that Julie Harris, in the commentary, she is very, very upfront of just like, I felt alone on this set, which was appropriate for the character. Yeah. But it was not... She didn't say it was like a horrible time for her, but she was fully aware that it was not... Like, she was despondent a little bit. Um, that's not like falling into the line of like, well, it's a cursed set. It's more just like, I think she f- intrinsically felt the character and knew what she had to do. She's, and that she's quite interested in this because, um, she, at the time she did admit to being severely depressed, which wasn't mm-hmm. helped by the fact that London was actually getting a second smog because he had a second uh, the second smog was in 1962 the first one was in 1952 and this is where we ended up with the London Clean Air Act in 1966 um because wait, wait. are you talking about you you guys have a clean air act <laughs> it's crazy i know <laughs> i i don't know how do you guys not inhale fumes and chemicals <laughs> It's okay. God damn it. In 1962, only 700 people died. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, now that you're bringing this up, she refers to it as the black fog. Exactly. Yeah. Now, this this is, she described it as such as that damp water combined with the coal fumes. Yes. Coming over the city. Everything run from coal. And covered the entirety of Britain Mm -hmm. and Middle Earth into the second (laughs) age of darkness. (laughs) I'm glad I got through that without laughing until the end. Um, (laughs) But um, 
and covering the city the city in darkness for five days, a drive that would normally take 30 minutes from her mm-hmm. living quarters to the studio <laughs> took four to five hours. Yes. <laughs> the 700 Guys. deaths weren't actually from inhalation. They were just road accidents. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that is... I just might be making I, shit up here, right? <laughs> but, no, I know. I'm sure you are. Now, but like... Here's the thing. Regardless of road deaths or inhalation, you know, like one thing that COVID has unexpectedly blessed the states with is that our emissions are down. And I remember the first month into my new job, I drove out to work and I'm like, it's it's suspiciously clear out today. Yeah. <laughs> like, even more so than usual. And I would love to go out to L.A. right now to be like, can I see the hills right now? It's basically zippity-doo-dah. <laughs> uh, hopefully less racist. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that movie. That movie may have to be discussed. I just don't know where I'm going to get a copy. And also, do I want to sit through that again? But anyway... <laughs> Yes, the sky covered in darkness. Yes. Um, the only the only like exposure to regular setting she has is inside the studio, so that would warp with your perception. Exactly. <laughs> but as well as what that Julie Harris, the way she worked, she stayed in character and she actually distanced herself from the rest of the cast, and right. to the point where um, they 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 really did think that she really hated them. And it wasn't mm-hmm. until she actually went into um, Bloom uh, over to Bloom's house after the filming had finished and brought us some yeah. flowers and chocolates and said, "Look, I really need to stay into character, so that is why I didn't actually do anything, you know." And and we weren't friends, and everybody else was chatting and happy, and then she was yeah. off on her own. Russ Russ Tamblin's like you know doing stand up for him in person, going like, "What's up, babe?" So anyway. Oh, Sipping god. on my martini. <laughs> oh god, we haven't gotten to him yet. I really, really do start to envy everybody on that set now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, welcome to the Russ Tambler now. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, you know, as you can clearly see, we're here on the set of the haunting, more like the crazy, right? Smoke him if you got him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you. I'll be here all night. I'm Russ Tamblin doing Russ Tamblin's stand. Try the steak. Well, welcome to. Welcome to my club, Haunted House. <laughs> um, it's but, spelled H-A-U-S because I know where the trend is going. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and, that's, um, that's why she actually just stayed aloof. And it's yeah, and, and she, which is a committed, it's a form of method acting. It is. But it's not, it's not strictly the... Uh, it's not like we're not talking like Daniel Day Lewis or Brando or James Dean. We're you know oh, like God, she's no. just aware of what she's got to do to stay in a mood. I've worked with actors where they need a minute to get into a mm. space to cry or to um or or to um in the case of the last film that I did like to get to a certain emotional spot. The uh the bottom line is is that some actors do need that time to separate themselves from it, and Julie Harris was able to kind of straddle both. But she does acknowledge that she didn't like not have a good time, like, and she yeah praised Wise for being like everybody describes Wise as like this soft spoken but very like kind yes. and encouraging director, like a very like you know cuddly fellow, like and 
it makes perfect sense. Every interview that I've seen for him, prior to doing just Houston, I was going to do Houston Wells. It didn't work out for certain reasons. But interviews with Wise, he does feel very apologetic for harming Magnificent Ambersons and that vocal inflection. Yeah. Like of just like, well, I'm really sorry to hear about that, but the bottom line is, is that's just what RKO wanted, and 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 that's it. I mean, it was he was paid to do what he had to do. Yeah, exactly. But like, so you get the sense of like he is a very he's a people person. he's very good at communicating to that. As well as that, he like we alluded to earlier, he is like Kubrick. He's the best at what he can be, whatever whatever he is doing. Yeah, except. Robert Wise was not going to torture Shelley Duvall. I'm never, <laughs> never going to drop that. Oh, Stanley. Oh, Stanley. You, he has to be discussed because he technically falls in this era multiple times. Um, <laughs> it's just that the films we over-discuss don't happen till later. Um, although I'd argue Dr. Strangelove has talked about a ton, um, as is uh, Paths of Glory and Spartacus. Um, but uh, with Wise, though... It seems like there's there, nobody had a bone to pick with him on this set. Exactly. So it's it's nice to have a director who's conflict free, has no <laughs> has no controversy he's, around him. Well, he's no ego. There's people that actually mm-hmm. state that he has no ego, and this yeah. is like the absolute opposite of the early directors, where you had the monocle, you had the crazy chaps. You know mm-hmm. the whip, everything else. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The fall. The fall. Uh, the fall lineup of Eric von Stroheim's yes. uh, clothing set. <laughs> That's his Welcome wardrobe. to my fashion show. <laughs> <laughs> As you can see, they have the very finest monocles in the world. <laughs> um, uh, only four ninety nine at your local Sears and Rob. Woolworths. Um, <laughs> stay out of Woolworths. <laughs> If you've made any messes. <laughs> Otherwise, come on in and have some fun with uh, with my monocles. Eric van Stroheim's monocles. Exclusively at Volvos. And occasionally a Sears and Roebuck if I feel fucking like it. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah. And then also on top of... Uh, uh, and on top of all that, uh, that VO in the car, it kind of cements the POV. She's our POV character. Yes. Prime now, um, there is a ensemble nature to the film, but she is the focus. We she is we are through her eyes for the most part. Yes, well, that's possibly why we only get her background because there was a a posted kind of background to Theo that we never saw. Oh, yes. Now uh, this wise... is quite interesting. Hmm. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, the uh, the the introduction that we get to Theo is that she's mm. in her apartment and she goes into the bathroom and there's a lipstick uh, message to her saying, um, I, hate I hate you. you or... yeah. yeah. And um, it's obviously from her ex-lesbian uh, lesbian lover as of now. <laughs> yep. Which kind? Oh of... yeah, it's oh she's not. You don't write that when you're <laughs> when you're leaving your park. <laughs> like, yeah, I'll see you at I'll see you at dinner. <laughs> yeah, I hate you. <laughs> yeah, XX. But, but yeah, and she does. <laughs> XO, XO, XO. And um, and 
actually Robert Wise said no this is too explicit and we we, we mm. want to keep this film implicit and keep it very suggested everything yeah is kind of suggested which is an interesting note of restraint from the director himself because normally mm. the director would be like no I want to show every fucking thing <laughs> Why won't you sh- let me show it, Sherlock? What the fuck? And but instead, this is why he's going like, no, 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 no. Less is suggestion. more. Yeah, and actually, it's interesting. Even if they kept this scene, it would be. It's not impossible, but it would be interesting to see what how they would have dealt with that with the censor, uh, the censorship Ooh, that still exists. God, yeah, the Hayes Code at the time. Yeah, the hate. Well, yeah, and th- at this point, it's the Sherlock office, and they are even worse. They're lenient. <laughs> yeah, well, they are. Yes, they are. But they are. <laughs> they are also incredibly blind because apparently, yeah. How do you not look at Psycho the first time, then rewatch it a second time, and go, "Well, this seems fine now." <laughs> it's because. It's because they're fucking stupid. It's because they're a bunch of fucking goddamn idiots. And I fooled every one of them. I'm like, I hate to be occupying this episode, but goddammit, those are fucking yes, morons. But this goes on way, way through the 70s and the 80s because you would have yep. slasher movies that would deliberately put in extra scenes that would demand to be caught. And they knew yeah. they, they would be caught, but yeah. it's not what they were about anyway. They were just wanted to put these scenes in to let the censor think that they were doing their own job, and then yeah, they would it's, uh, release the film they wanted. Yeah, it's leverage essentially. Yes, and <laughs> the uh, and actually, like it even goes beyond horror films too. Like Team America <laughs> had more posi- had had even had even more uh, clips of those puppets <laughs> fucking that mm, Trey and Matt said. Sex. Like, look, yeah, we're like we're just gonna get we're just gonna give them all this. <laughs> And say like, okay, well, here's the restrained version. Are you in or out? <laughs> like, um, and like, in out, like over in here, out, in out. Yeah, <laughs> literally. And it out <laughs> over here in this country, sex is much more censored than violence. Where I I know that from yes. tangible mm-hmm. knowledge, violence is much more of an issue on your guys's end, which obviously leads to the video nasties uh, uh, scenarios. Yes, which is actually been dis- uh, designated illegal. Because um, it was found out that it wasn't actually ratified. It's a law that was never ratified. So it's oh. there are people that were prosecuted for a law that didn't exist. <laughs> oh my god! This was two oh. years ago. Yeah. I mean, that's. I'm not laughing at people who are prosecuted. Oh no, in no, a, no, in at British all. Court. no, but I'm laughing because the goddamn idiots. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> You guys didn't get Texas Chainsaw Massacre without going around people's backs for oh a long my time. God, yes. But you, but you got it now, and it's wonderful. Oh, and um, it's in 4K now. Oh yeah, oh, and yes. it's it looks beautiful, and in that, it still in that. sounds terrifying. Yep, yep. Oh god, <laughs> I, every. Speaking of sounds that terrify, though. Too. Yes. So, uh. First off, we're we're gonna get to a little bit of it here in a minute, but before that, she goes into the house and she's greeted by Mrs. Dudley, uh, who is um. Well, actually, there is that shot where she looks up at the top of the library steps where this the the caretaker 
uh, hung herself. Yeah. That area. And um, the house looks down back on her. So already we're dealing with the house has a presence, uh, a mind of its own, and it, it, it exists. Yeah. It lives. Um, not Larry Cohen's It Lives. It just lives. <laughs> um, Backtrack a bit because I would just yeah. want to have a quick word about Mr. Dudley, which she meets, who she meets at the gate. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Valentine yes. Dial. I want to be this guy when I grow up. <laughs> oh, Valentine Dial. I mean, at the at this particular moment he's only 55 years old right mm-hmm. and he looks like he's about 90 but he also has the sound of hades when it comes to his voice and he mm-hmm. is the voice of so much radio mystery but as well as that he's also um pretty much the same character in city of the living dead from 1959 which became the first amicus film to a certain extent Really? Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I so then so the, so he basically is at the founding of Amicus. He like, is. Yeah. Yeah. More or less. Yes. Wow. And he's. I need to basically doing the same thing. Is very much a harbinger of doom. Ooh. I. I. So and which which as we all know extends all the way into this wonderful legacy from a Donald Pleasance to a crazy Ralph and Friday the 13th. Yes. Um, <laughs> this, this, like you're all fucking like you're, you're all goddamn doomed. It's a lofty actually, mantle. It, yeah, exactly. These shoulders. And it takes, it takes, it takes a true hero. Yes. To stand on a porch <laughs> and say, don't go in there, you'll die. Yes. And then go inside and deal with the other 23 hours of the day. <laughs> <laughs> At least Dr. Loomis has a car. Dudley, Mr. Dudley, has has this job with seemingly like an eight-hour to st- eight to ten-hour affair at the house because yeah. they leave promptly at six o'clock. Yep. They can't leave any time after that or otherwise shit goes bananas. Mm-hmm. Um. Really quickly before we go back to the Dudleys, I need to go. Obviously, I need to start diving more into Amicus. One, thanks to your podcast, but two, City of the Dead. Also, the horror title, the the title in the U.S. Horror Hotel. Yes, like, <laughs> which I need to watch. It's got Christopher Lee. Yes, uh, Dennis Lotus. I need this in my life. I'm, oh it's God, amazing. I'm, I'm, it is such I'm, a good film. Um, it's you're gonna make films. me spend a lot of money I don't have. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those films that. Over the years, I've watched over and over again, and then the last couple of years, I've watched a hell of a lot, and Ooh. it's just an amazing film to watch as a cinematic thing, because what they do with what they have is amazing. Um, everybody's coating fog, uh, but it's a fog that's made up of potently toxic chemicals. <laughs> Which makes it... Are you sh- <laughs> Are you sure this is safe? <laughs> I don't want to have I don't want to have any issues down the line. <laughs> Everybody's dead, Dave. They're all dead. <laughs> are you saying that I, Christopher Lee, am the only one to have lived to tell the tale of toxic fog? <laughs> Which is also the name of my black metal band. <laughs> <laughs> it's the sound of my that's a, that's a sh- that, 
that's a shout out to Smokey because if he's listening, he's gonna. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he's yeah. the one who creates the band names at film at film club. We're just there for we're just there for the ride. Smokey, um, Smokey will be uh, playing the guitar in uh, Toxic Fog. <laughs> lead guitar. Yes. Yeah, and Lee uh, Lee is obviously vocals and uh, fellow. <laughs> Fellow film clubite Stacy plays the triangle, yes, as we all know. As always. Um yeah, and I'm just gonna sit there with uh one of those styrofoam hands going, Woo, Toxic Fog! <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a I'm just a fan. I have no desire to join this artistic endeavor. <laughs> I'm just like, no, 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 man. Your music. Gorgeous. <laughs> you do um, that shit. Yeah, yeah, you do that. I'm gonna go over here. And uh, get Christopher Lee's autograph and then go like, I met Christopher Lee. <laughs> He's in a weird space in his life right now, but it's pretty cool. Yeah, but um, City of the Living Dead, definitely recommend. But now back to the haunting. Yes. Already in progress. Um, Mr. Dudley gives her the warning, the harbinger of doom. She goes up to the house. She has that look up at the house. And then Mrs. Dudley enters the picture as she enters the house. And she's Mrs. Harbinger Doom. Yes, Mrs. Harbinger <laughs> Doom with a spe- with a speech that is planned to the hilt. Yes. She gives the she gives this performance at dinner theater because word she Word for word. It's and it's and oh Kev, you noticed this right off the bat. It's not just the words, it's the delivery. She yes. does William Shatner pauses. Like <laughs> yeah. when it gets dark at night. In the dark. At night. Bueller. Bueller, Bueller, like this. <laughs> there's, there's like that. Like she, I love her performance in it. I do love, um, Rosalie Crutchley as that harbingeress of doom. Um, it just the the line works the first time, and then when Theodora enters the picture in her leopard yeah. skin coat, by the way. Oh um, yeah. Which Claire Bloom fully admitted, like, oh, that was of the time, and it was ridiculous. And I was- <laughs> yeah, but she, uh, all Claire Bloom's um, designs were sorted by Mary Quant, who was the it girl at the time for fashion in the UK. Really? Okay, so then this was all like she was she, really hot. She set upon like, no, no, Claire's gonna be our mm-hmm. it girl for the haunting. Defo, um, Jeffo. Yeah, and then uh, it's that's interesting to note because like it's the only really well apart from the car that you just discussed, it is kind of like the only thing that dates the movie, probably. Um, yeah, because like the, so it's the car and her clothes, but even her hmm. clothes later on don't feel too out of sorts. Like, no, they don't look too hackneyed. She does have like a kind of sixty-ish medallion at one point, but everything yeah. else is kind of just like ah, this could be in the late eighties or, or the early eighties at the very least. But I like the um, way that they talk over her when, on the mm-hmm. second conversation where she's still going through the same spiel. Yeah. They talk over her, and it's like it's. I'm watching a Robert Altman movie now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just there's that... there's two lines of dialogue going on, but. Everybody's ignoring everybody else and just go doing their own shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, and it, wow, she, because there's character development going on between Eleanor and Theo, and then meanwhile, Perfect. and then meanwhile, Mrs. Dudley's just like, um, I haven't delivered my line. <laughs> yes, I have one speech. <laughs> I have one speech. Robert told me I could say it as many times as I want. <laughs> Isn't that right, Rob? Yes, yes, yes. That's cool. Every, nobody needs to shout. 
everything's fine. <laughs> everything's fine. Just drink some tea. Let's all relax. <laughs> wise. And, um, and she she gives the speech again, and it, fo- it feels weird the second time until you realize that, like, there's a revelation about Mrs. Dudley that she willingly gives out information for money. So clearly she's not above theatrics. Um, mm. Because, like, that, because how Mr. Marquay's wife finds out about it is just like, oh, Mrs. Dudley's like a huge blabbermouth for $5. And I'm just yeah. like, that's my, that's my confirmation that she gives this fucking performance at dinner theater right before the steak arrives. Because yeah. that is very much like, it's, it's, um, it's sort of similar to stage fright where, uh, the, the, uh, maid or the, the, the maid like witnesses, uh, a murder, but she's not talking about it. But then she gives Jane Wyman the lead in to infiltrate this actress's life. So like there's some similarity to it in that respect. It's yep. super vague though. Um, <laughs> it doesn't matter though, because Theo basically assures, uh, Eleanor that they're going to be great friends like sisters <laughs> and, yeah. and and right off the bat Theo's hitting on Eleanor or or cozying up to her and we're getting that the les uh, the the lesbian subtext in it to an extent and I think that it's interesting that it develops it's not like overt in every scene there is a build up to it yes um, and it's uh, gradual and it also puts into question Theo's actual feelings towards Eleanor by the end of the movie because there's a lot of scenes where Theo is hot and cold towards her uh, in a way that I tried to reckon in terms of the whole, well, is this in her mind or is it a ghost? No, I I think that's humanistic anyway because Mm -hmm. nobody is full on hot on anybody all the time. Oh yeah, no, yeah. Everybody you know, has their do. own frustrations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You so, know, like you know, did you leave that in the fridge? What the hell? Like it's over. Uh, it's, yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's that needed to be out two hours ago. What are you doing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah but, d- 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 just why, so, why do I put you in yeah. charge of the fridge? <laughs> <laughs> um, so but, I don't know. I think this is probably the most naturalistic performance of a lesbian I've seen. That's, that, well, at least uh, certainly in this era. Oh, certainly definitely, in this era. yes. I mean, obviously, there's the acting that we have today can can draw a line to things like this um, in a similar way that you can draw lines to the subtext that Hitchcock put in his films. There's a line here that draws into it, and horror ends up being a more influential genre than most because of its staying power with the ability to terrify or the ability to scare or at least the implication of it. Um, yeah. fascination with the macabre. So there's a lot of like wise innovating, especially in a studio system that probably would never have allowed it unless he was clever about it. And what's more, she is, she does care for Eleanor, which I yes. love. I do love that. She does care for Eleanor. That Eleanor is so far gone by a certain point. Yeah, there's there's a few scenes where she hugs her, you know, where they they actually share the same blanket, mm-hmm. and she's basically making sure that she's okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that comes into the form of um one of the first big scares of the movie. <gasps> oh. Um, 
Yeah, we'll get to it. Don't worry. Because they have to first find the hall with the food. Um, oh, and yeah. Yeah, and, and the they find China. Yeah, and... fi- find oh, China and God. psychics figuring out which door is which. Before this, it is established that Theo is a psychic or she has psychic <laughs> yes. ability. Um, yeah. And she actually, she's like, she, she guessed nine out of 10 cards in the card guessing game, which I was like, did she develop the game that Bill Murray plays with his students in Ghostbusters? Yep. Where I'm just, <laughs> yeah, this was uh, developed by my, uh, my in- in- inquisitive professor, Professor Theodora. And she, you know, she just said it's totally cool. And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to shock the hell out of people. Fuck with them. And, you know, and then, you know, refuse to be in a sequel for years and then finally be in a sequel, but not mention it because whatever. <laughs> um, and, uh, but anyway, they, they are looking for the door. They can't find it. We get a sense of Nell's ability to connect, not with the supernatural, but with the house. I think there's a big distinctive difference between her ability to connect with the supernatural. Like Marquay thinks it is. And the actuality of the house consuming her. Yeah. Because she he hires her or brings her to the house on the auspices of like, well, you had a psychic experience where the house was, rain- your stones rained on your house when you were three for three days. And, but her actual connection to the house has nothing to do with connection to the supernatural, but the house is calling to her literally. Um, and by the time they get through this hallway scene. Theodora already suspects something's up with Nell that's not being unveiled or revealed. But it's okay because Mitch, Richard Marquay has opened a door that has closed itself because all the doors are at an angle. And so therefore, yeah. they close on their own. And then he's like, well, let's uh, see if we can uh, find the actual dining hall. Let's see if your psychic predictions are correct. And he opens a door and a broom falls out. And he's like, one of you must be, one <laughs> he, of you must a, be a witch. Yeah, he did. <laughs> he did. And so they, we can see that John Marquay can't read a map at all. <laughs> I don't know the outlay of these houses. I'm here to have a, mu- I'm here to have a mustache and find a ghost. That's all I'm really here for. <laughs> And to give a really cool monologue at the beginning of a movie that will go down in history that people will dissect frame by frame and then listen to my commentary about. Um, <laughs> and But they go to the dining hall, and I'm going to just build this up as best as I can. You picture, if you will, you're coming into a dining hall. You're, you've just met the head of your psychic experiment into the paranormal. You're with another psychic. Your name is Nell. You have no idea what's in store for you at this house. And then in around the corner with with the bouffantiest of hairdos flapping around in the wind and <laughs> a letterman jacket clearly from college and a drink stirring mixer stick in his hand in rocks Russ Tamblin as Luke. Oh, yeah. In a swagger that, again, when I said Dean Martin light, I wasn't lying. That's. <laughs> It he was once he was one sentence short going like ladies and gentlemen please welcome the rat of the stage Don Rickles and like this just starting his own roast of people in the house because that's what he ends up doing he is not into the paranormal what's more he thinks they're all idiots <laughs> yes <laughs> he, is, he is the traditional non-believer in a horror movie which is a trope that exists still exists to this day. 
something I wanted to ask you. Did he Knowing... exist then, though? Is this just a trope that's just I think it's, something since? I think it's I think it's a trope that's always been there to one form or another. Yeah, possibly, yeah. I think I mean, that this particular most... version of it hmm. um, feels like it's one that we've stuck into haunted house movies more often nowadays. Well, I mean, there was a, a disbeliever in the old dark house, for instance, and that was nineteen thirty-four. So yeah, yeah so possibly. Then, so, yeah. Then, so then, never mind. So this isn't an innovator. I'll take, I'll take is, that back. <laughs> yeah, no, no. This this carries the tradition onward. No, that's yes. true. James James James. I, I Ian McKellen did did it first. <laughs> Before I played a wizard, I played a director who did that. Ian first. McKellen. Oh, is um, his first film appearance is in an Amicus film. Huh? Ah. Oh my god. <laughs> we're just going to call this episode Zach loses his shit. Because <laughs> I'm just getting revelation. What? I now, now, to be fair, my Ian McKellen knowledge starts with Gods and Monsters. I know he did theater prior. Yeah. Um but um, his his first film is A Touch of Love from 1969. Oh wow, that early. Jesus. Yeah. I knew he was well, I knew he was acting early on, but I didn't realize he was acting that early. 2 months before I was born. Wow. <laughs> if I start <laughs> acting on the stage, Kev will be born. Kev. <laughs> and then he can join my brotherhood of evil mutants. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh god. <laughs> Kev has a wicked tongue, Senator, just like you. <laughs> <laughs> You're just Ray Park. <laughs> oh, Kev is an X-Man. I love it. Um, but anyway, regardless of that, though, this disbeliever character, what I was going to pitch to you is, is that it's interesting how they turn this non-believer into a fully fleshed out character in the movie. Yes. Where he has an arc, and it's yeah. not the primary arc. It's not even the secondary or the third arc. It's no. like the the bottom of the rung. But he gets the last spoken on camera line in the movie. Where fantastic. Yeah, we, I won't reveal it now. We'll get no. to it. But he, yeah. um, we get a starting point of it where he's you know shooting down theories of um superstition and going like well why would they put salt on the ground and why would they do this he and, plays everything down yeah and markway's just like anthropology bitch <laughs> <laughs> yeah and they science yes yeah, si science bitch <laughs> i'm i could have played jesse that would have been a great role for me richard johnson you imagine me in a beanie hanging around with Brian Cranston going, motherfucker. Um, <laughs> but uh, he starts going into dinner. He goes like, I suppose you're wondering why I all gathered you here. Well, I'm going to be vague um, <laughs> because he and it's not like and it's not necessarily a joke per se. He is kind of just like, how much do I fully reveal here? Like he doesn't. He he's kind of I think he gets the feeling of just like I don't know if all these guys are in to stay for the long run mm. because they like or a bunch of people already turned me down. These guys might turn me down as well. So it wouldn't be out of his realm to be a little cagey with certain details, but um the one thing he makes very clear is is that Russ Tamblin cannot crack jokes about spirits and booze. 
Like yeah. he will not he will not put up with great jokes. Yeah, <laughs> that's his problem. Richard Johnson has no sense of humor in this movie. He can't put up with genius. Um and uh <laughs> they but I do I do appreciate though, like she starts to get this sense of community, Eleanor does. She starts to feel at home one yep. of them. She clarifies that she doesn't drink. And I like at the very least in this particular scene. Nobody's pushing alcohol on her, because um, like that, like that's just like one of those things. I'm just like, oh, they, they actually like you know they're they're not they're not jerks about anything. Like they're yeah. not like peer pressuring or anything. So there is a lot of care and compassion, which makes this all the more tragic as we keep going. Um, and also before we leave that dinner dining room, a wolf in ghost's clothing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I I I, you know. Props to him having the hair to pull off that joke because I don't think anybody There's, else could pull that off. He's like, yeah, but he, there's, there's so many hits on that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> throughout the yeah. films, <laughs> just like let's let's dissect wolf and goat's clothing now. What are you? I know what a wolf's supposed to mean at this point in the uh, in from the forties to sixties. It's probably fading off now. What what are you trying to say that you do in your spare time to people at a sorority, Mister <laughs> Mister Tamlin? Because this sounds problematic, and I want to remember you as you are—a swaggering <laughs> Dean Martin wannabe who isn't a creep. Um, but anyway, it's a silly line. I mean, at one point he does say, uh, "The the spirit is uh, male or female." It's like. Yeah, he's not really helping your cause here. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah, he's <laughs> it's it almost it, it's it's not it's not forgivable, but it is of the era to where I'm like, okay, okay, this oh, guy's yeah. a this guy's a this guy's a love machine and you know, he's he's going to he's going to get his comeuppance in some form and he does in a very satisfying way that isn't violent. Um but they cut to this scene of them playing cards, hanging out in the living room, the parlor, and whatnot. Right. And playing cards. Why would you play cards with a nine out of ten psychic? Because because Do you Luke, like the challenge. Yeah, Luke. Luke is an arrogant prick. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't. Yes. This isn't. This isn't the biggest mystery of the movie. Luke he is has, an arrogant prick. <laughs> He has an inf- instinct for survival. Yes, that is true. <laughs> yes, very much so. He can land on the ground like a cat, as we see, uh, see oh, in that yes. later scene in the library. Those dancing he, shoes. Yeah, and the, the the bigger thing on this, though, ultimately lies in watching Eleanor um, uh, not go interact. Through, yeah, not interact and staying very, very uh, uh, socially distant from people. Yeah. So she's adhering to COVID standards right away. <laughs> she's in love. Um, yeah. And uh, th- it, it lays into the fact, it, it's part of one of many ways that the film lays into understatement and the it the, the scenes are underplayed. Yes. So nothing, nothing feels overly dramatic and... Um, overly uh overly ambitious like it's very very realistic yeah everything's natural yeah everything is exactly where it needs to well, be well like i go back to the conversation about robert altman you know everything's yes. naturalistic um yeah. the whole way that people talk is the way that people talk yes yes very much so like it's 
it's a typical conversation you'd hear in yeah. real life. It's not yeah. unrealistic. Even when they describe her poltergeist experience in her childhood. Exactly. It's and treated... even in these even in these weird circumstances that they are, they mm-hmm. are normal, real people. Yeah, exactly. They're not like they're not archetypes. They're not people we put into a Friday the thirteenth or <laughs> a yeah. um uh, or even a poltergeist sequel at that point, you know, like there's there's legitimate grounding to these characters so much so yeah. that so much so like we're going to we're getting to the first big scare of the movie. Um, and um, oh, Jesus, to some I don't think we can talk about this. Oh, we, we can. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> because part of me wants to start laying in the sound effects of uh, everything going on Jesus as we Christ, uh, talk I'm about this scene. Yeah, because I'm a sadistic person. And now, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, they're we they all go to they all go to bed separately. Uh, like so, Julie Harris has her own room. Claire Boom has her own room. So Nell and yeah. Theodore are separated out. Um, uh, Luke goes. Theodore question mark. <laughs> Theo question mark. Yes. Now. <laughs> Luke swaggers in with a drink and he's like, okay, well, I guess I'll go to my bed, daddy-o. And, bum, 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 um, bum. <laughs> oh, babe, before, before I go, is it wrong of me to be uh, ignorant um, or uh, have a closed mind against the supernatural? And uh, Dr. Marquez says that a closed mind is the worst defense against the yeah. supernatural. And I'm like, oh, so that means racists are fuck when it comes to ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, uh, but anyway... <laughs> <laughs> he, he goes anyway they're in the bed or she's in bed she starts yeah. hearing the pounding like and then she gets freaked out Jesus Christ she goes to Theo's room shuts the door behind her and then they start both hearing the sounds together and it's all through uh, Nell's mind really it's really all through Nell's mind um because we get more voiceover of her as this goes on. Yeah. And what's more, she, her voiceover keeps telling her that the house wants her and, you know, like something's finally happening to me. Like a lot of things permeate throughout the film. In this particular instance, she instinctively knows what the house is trying to do. And at one point when the noise stops, she turns around and goes to Theo and goes, you big baby. And I'm like, that's interesting how she collects herself even for a solid second. Yeah. Like has this sense of confidence about her um, that allows her to um, uh, basically tether between her sanity and her insanity because she's she wants to be in the house, but she doesn't want the house to get her. So it's like this weird like, well, I know what I want, but does, but is it what I want? I want something to happen to me. But what is it? I don't know. And playing to her, it's not indecisive so much as like she's she's looking for a feeling that when she knows it's there, she'll identify it accordingly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I will say that the, the, this whole scene, we just watched a version of this scene at Film Club with the Leopard Man. Because... Very much. The scene with the door... In yes. this, in in the haunting, a cu- this happens a couple times. But um, for the purposes of it, all the door sequences very much homage the Luton effect, where the horror is happening outside, the scary things mm-hmm. outside. We are only seeing the reaction of the people who are behind the door, away from it, 
feasibly in safety and we see pounding at the door we hear pounding at the door um and the only difference is in uh the uh in the leopard man you see blood trickle from the bottom of the door in in here it's just pounding it's a poltergeist um and it gets scarier and scarier and then it starts then it's when it stops it stops and there was a chill in the air that has now gone back to warm so they're no longer cold but she does still, as you said before, she gives her that blanket to comfort her. So again, yeah. that care and compassion. And uh, Dr. Markway and Luke enter in going like, I say, was everything okay? We were out looking for a dog. And <laughs> not just a dog, but a hellhound. Yes, right, a real devil dog, daddy-o. And <laughs> the, the, they, this is one of my favorite human scenes in the movie. The, Theo... And Nell laugh off their experience. Yes. That is fucking brilliant. Yeah. I have don't think I've ever really seen in a in the way that this this movie does it, characters who have been scared shitless laugh it off that way. But that's how you would do it. Yep. Because you were trying to reassure yourself. Yes. The, you you're the, trying to make sense of it all. Yeah. The thing and, the thing under your bed doesn't exist. Yeah, and that's mm-hmm. exactly how you would expect to mm-hmm. respond. But yep. yet, when you see a horror film, nobody responds like that, except nope. in this. Yeah, this is one of the... F- I think this is the only time that I can positively say that with... Because everything, everything after this treats it like a joke. Like, I love Halloween, mm. but Halloween does have more disbelief tangent tangentially yeah. put into it like like when annie is you know looking around uh and going like paul is this one of your cheap tricks <laughs> yeah you know exactly. like stuff like that or like oh like uh, lester shut That's... up but you don't know that lester is the dog being strangled by michael myers he killed the dog <laughs> and ate it. as well as as well as this this is the first night and the first night is when they get the doorknob <gasps> turning this is the best doorknob turning in a movie ever. Oh my god, that is this just is. so shocking. <laughs> and just... we have, and I've grown up with great door door doorknob turns in cinema from serious <laughs> different horror films. This is the best one because it's it's well, both not... subtle, but it's also yes. terrifying sound effects wise. Yeah, well, the sound effects. I always look at this film and think, God, this is just such genius because this was 1963. Right, and um, Electro... Oh, God, now, I'm trying to think of it. Electro Meshitech, um, EMT 140, was released in 1957, which was the first reverb unit. Mm -hmm. Now, at the time, that was really too expensive for anybody to use. Mm -hmm. So, the sound effects for this film were recorded in a separate manor house, an empty manor house, and then used for the film subsequently. You know, they they would be played into the sound effects and they would be used in the film uh, on the eventual mix. Right. So that, which, as we alluded to, they played the sound on set for them too. Sometimes, yes. Yeah, so there's like, but this is like... This is an early innovation of sound effects wise, which 
Between this and an upcoming episode of Forbidden Planet, we're going to be talking a lot about how yeah. sound effects and yeah, sound yeah, design definitely. change. Yeah. Um, not the least of which for scores, because a God, lot of yeah. a lot of what this sound effects, the sound effects in this film does with with that tech, and also what the birds innovates the same year with its score, yes, which <laughs> actually is sampling technology. Mm-hmm. That echoplex, that <laughs> that thing. I I still love the idea of Bernhard Herman going like no 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 I don't want to do any work today. <laughs> Use that machine. It's not like it'll put me out of work ever. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's gonna be just fine. Hunky <laughs> dory. Uh, yeah, cut. To- I'll see you in Taxi Diary in seventy four. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jazz score. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about a disassociated war vet. Um, but but anyway, yeah. The everything, all of cinema is at work in those scare scenes. In all these huh? scare scenes, everything yep. in cinema is at work: sound, visuals, lighting, acting, yep. and s- d- dialogue. Yes, but sparingly. It is mm. a f- it is an extension of pure cinema. It's not Very like much. full. Be- it's not full. There are moments of pure cinema in this movie where the sound effects die down, and he just the sits dialogue in is used to to um sort of what's what was the word create the, the mood. The, yeah, the dialogue is used to punctuate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly where you are. Yeah, it's trying to it's it's enhancing that atmosphere that Wise is creating, mm, and definitely right right now this this experience is also. The mood is now in confusion as well because Dr. Marquay and Luke were looking for this dog and they had to go off property to look for this dog. Yeah. And they come to the conclusion through this that clearly the house is trying to separate them, which that's not wrong, it, but uh, maybe not down the middle the way you think it is. <laughs> like. <gasps> So it's already diverting your expectation of like, well, the women will be separated from the men, but then the men will save the day. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Nobody's safe. Nobody's goddamn safe at all. <laughs> and what's more, we start getting more and more of Eleanor feeling affinity towards Hill House. The next day, they explore this house and they discover a cold spot. <gasps> oh, oh, oh wait, but, but I would say before that, actually, before this, we get that din- that breakfast scene. Yes. With, um, uh, with the heart. Or was that with, the day after? No, 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 no. no. Oh, no, 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 no. This, this is after, actually, no, 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 I lied. Yeah. This is after we get that, we get that, uh, uh, the, this breakfast scene after we start seeing them, they're looking through the house. And we get writing on the wall. <laughs> oh, my word. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it says, help Eleanor come home. Now, <laughs> when I first, I did, I, it's taken me many viewings to understand the duality of help Eleanor come home because I'm, I have the intelligence of a twig. But more importantly, it's because this is a dual meaning. Um, help Eleanor come home. Without a comma, yes, is very important. Grammar is very important, children. Very important. <laughs> Punctuation. Everything you use. It's the difference between you're an asshole and you're an asshole. But um, uh, but anyway, 
they help Eleanor come home, as we as understand it, alludes to the fact um, that they are uh, that Eleanor, who has revealed at this point that she was taking care of her invalid mother and did not uh, come to her one night when she was pounding on the door because she was tired from exhaustion. Which is why she actually responds with, no, not now, when she's got the knocking on the wall. Uh-huh. Yeah. Not now. Not now. And she's, and it's 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 tragic for Eleanor. It's haunting. And hey, mm-hmm. it's the haunting. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> that that's me. Um, and uh, <laughs> it's just the haunting itself coming to, uh, coming around to it. But um, she uh, actually uh, in that uh, that that before that actually it is the breakfast scene because I just remembered this. She describes amongst other things about herself because she's trying to 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 relate to Doctor Markway and like you know, be less creepy towards Dr. Markway um, by basically going like, well, you know, I do this, this, and this, and I sleep on my left side because I heard it wears the heart out quicker. And yes. <laughs> which is, Not I made a creepy. note of, I made, I made a note of that to be like, all right, sleeping on the right side. It's the only thing a right side's good for in this day and age. Just sleeping sleep on, on the left. left. So, yeah. uh, fuck <laughs> you. <laughs> <laughs> I I I alternate, so my heart's going in all kinds of crazy directions. I eh, have no idea. I'll sleep on the left. I've died already twice. I don't care. <laughs> I'm dead inside. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, as well as this, the the whole thing where she's trying to like cozy up to him, mm-hmm. you know, because at this point in time, she has no idea that he is actually. Off limits, and yeah, she doesn't. He isn't aware of that of what we already know, like, yeah. which is a little. It's not a bomb under the table, but it is like prior information up front. That I guess it is a bomb under the table. Doctor Marquay is married, and, yeah, and is and he. The reason that his wife's not there right now is because, like, well, my wife just thinks that this ghost shit is silly, and I. <laughs> Pretty and, much. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, she just thinks it's a goddamn fucking circus. And I try to tell her, like, yes, but it's an elaborate three-ring circus that I'm going to unveil for the public. <laughs> and, and, and you know, God bless him, he also goes into his anthropology spiel, and he's just like, I figure if I can take the, uh, if we if we have the, you know, the uh men uh, spirits possessing greater gifts than man in the supernatural then it's one step closer to you know all kinds of abilities for us mm-hmm. and i immediately thought again spiritual x-men because like that he's kind of like it's not a <laughs> joke really i mean it's kind of funny but he he's he is kind of talking about that idea of like human abilities beyond the norm which yes is a subject within paranormal films that doesn't always get discussed beyond the simple realm of like, well, the ghost you can walk right through you because there's protoplasm, Martha, <laughs> and, and that's how ghosts work, darling, and like that that kind of element. So it's interesting to hear him talk about it clinically, in a way that is not um, full of, for lack of a better term, hocus pocus and mumbo jumbo. Um, it's very, very clinical. It's very, yeah. very um, straightforward approach. 
uh, in a way that we don't really see until I'm well, we see it all throughout, but like the most recent example would probably be the conjuring where they provide a clinical explanation of sorts to what goes on in the films. It's tainted because again, we're talking about it in Lorraine Warren, but, um, not, that's neither here nor there. Um, the, the, but she also relates her need for this excitement. Um, we get that we we get the we get that chalk on the wall then, and then after that, we we get this confrontation where Eleanor is again put through the ringer by Theo, and it's again one of those examples oh, yeah. of people not being hot and cold on another, and Theo. Theo is is unconscionable here going like, you know, maybe you wrote that on the wall to, you know, make us, uh-huh. you know, think of what. Maybe you wrote it with the chalk, which, oh, by the way, they say like chalk, something like chalk. And I'm like, oh, it, the ghosts do cocaine. And that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's gotta be now, what it is. Cause it's something like chalk. It's the weird thing because like, um, he's there to recommend, uh, to record everything. And right. yet he doesn't, take any photos or make any samples of the chalk <laughs> cocaine I, kind of stuff. I, I assume things with my mind Kev this, this <laughs> is the beauty of Dr. Markway is that everything is in the brain right yes uh, in he the is brain. it's Professor Z- Xavier <laughs> yes, oh, yeah. I told you I believed in X-Men, and that's why when everybody joins my school and not your school, you'll know fucking why. <laughs> my school is very, very small. <laughs> Kev, Kev's underground brotherhood of evil mutants. <laughs> you got all the rogues gallery. You got everybody there. You- you even got Dr. Moriarty and the Headless Horseman, because why the fuck not? <laughs> <laughs> At Kev's school, anybody's welcome. <laughs> smoke um, him if you got him. Smoke him if you got him, yes. And But anyway, yes, you're right. It is kind of weird that he doesn't, because he is ra- relying on, amongst other people, Theo, a psychic, um, which is like, that's not yeah. necessarily reliable. He does give him those surveys to fill out. Like, and just go, like, you know, check here if you saw ghosts. Check here if you saw poltergeist. Check here if you saw Barbara Streisand. Like, yeah. Like, think it's it's more um, academic-based than it is professionally based. And the thing is, it's very dismissive of um, Eleanor from the very beginning because um, he actually says to her, do you want to go? I I'd prefer if you go go now. You know, this is the first day, the first full day, and he's already saying, "Look, love, I, I don't think you're gonna crack it." You know, just uh, let's just go now. Look, you're not creepy, but you're creepy. <laughs> <laughs> and not I'm creepy not gonna enough. lie, that, that that thing about sleeping on your left side kind of scared the shit out of me. <laughs> I I may have made a dookie in my pants. Because that, that was morbid at the breakfast table, darling. <laughs> and this, this is where I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull it up right now. This is where Theo unloads on it, and 
Nell rightfully reacts, going like, you motherfucker, how dare you insinuate yeah. that I change my hair and write things on the wall? And and Dr. Marquay's like, no, 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 no. She's trying to get a rise out of you and that, yes. to make you feel less afraid. And, and I'm she like, does it so well. <laughs> and it's true. But I did have the comment of like, yes, that's the best way to make people less afraid. Uh-huh. Get them uh-huh. super pissed. <laughs> yes. And then I was like, oh, the last four years. That's <laughs> <laughs> But as well as that, later on she gets her to say, "Are you married?" Yeah, yeah. And then of course she goes, Ugh. and you can see the look of terror in her face. Is like, "Oh shit, I've been rumbled. I'm yeah. a lesbian." Hey, I've, <laughs> hey, I've been had. And then she drives out the window. <laughs> <laughs> it's all for you, Damien. <laughs> um, and Different then. House. Oh yeah, different house, different, different, uh, different, uh, uh, bold voice actor. Damien, yeah, it's only th- Damien, <laughs> only three doors away. Oh God, yeah. Gregory <laughs> Peck is just like I don't know what's going on over there at that house, but it's Gregory, full of Gregory fucking nonsense. He doesn't know I, what's going on anywhere. At least our boy, you know, has has the decency to clean up after himself. Speaking of which, where is Damien? Damien? <laughs> Gregory oh, Peck you... doesn't know what's going on anywhere. Have you seen the boys from Brazil? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you! Oh, you! <laughs> you mean you mean the movie where he's oh, in the you bitch? <laughs> you. Gregory Peck and the boys from Brazil. Ah, it's it would be cheating, Kev, but I want to do that movie now. <laughs> Year wise, because that's not it's not only him; it's Maximilian Schnell too. And oh I, no! And I love both of them, and that's like it falls into this wonderful line of movies of like Nazi hunters of the fucking ball, yo. Um, well, but like it. Yeah, he is oblivious. He's <laughs> It's just he's so ob- bizarre that you've got him and um Laurence Olivier and yes. they basically flip the the roles between them oh, on yeah. Marathon Man. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. And it is <laughs> and I lied, uh that isn't I don't believe that is Maximilian Schnell. No, it's James uh, James Mason's in it too. But it also Oh has James Dino- Mason's amazing. Yeah, that yeah, he is. And then it also has Denholm Elliott and <laughs> early Steve Gutenberg. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> that gets took out very quietly. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a movie that exists. I like it, but I but it's so far fetched, it's just like you can't make it today without raising all the eyebrows. Right. And it's not There's, we do a film guff episode on it. <laughs> yeah. And it is hilarious because I need to I need to go back to that one then because that we, we unpick this quite respondably, responsibly, <laughs> and what? But I picked it up on the realm of like, okay, I've been going through like you know Nazi hunters or like you know like Nazis fleeing underground. So I like did like Judgment at Nuremberg yep. first, and then I did other Max Emelian Schnell films, and then I got to Boys from Brazil, and I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> In, 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 in what world is Gregory Peck Doctor Joseph Mengele? But then I just, but then I just shut my goddamn mouth because Lawrence Olivier does do a good job at playing, um, like a um, a guy that complains about leaks. Well, he's he yes he complains about leaks, but he is also 
He's based off of Simon Wiesenthal, who was yes. an actual noted Nazi a hunter. Real so I was like, person. I looked at it from that perspective. Now, again, we are talking about like <laughs> no, crazy be, sci-fi nonsense. You'd <laughs> like, been better off going to it as a guy that complains about leaks because <laughs> that's probably better off. Oh, it's a it's a it's a performance about complaining about leaks that got Lawrence Olivier an Academy <laughs> Award nomination for Best Actor, sir. I've got yep. that pulled up right now, and a Golden Globe nomination, of course, went to Gregory Peck because why the hell not? <laughs> that movie, that movie again. As we are talking about it right now, that movie is great and weird at the same time. It is like it's a hard film to recommend to people. Be like, how how <laughs> much are you willing to stretch yourself? But anyway, I should get back to The Haunting because yes. we could be here all night about the, night um, two. the boys from Brazil. Let's night get back to two. Night 2. <laughs> night 2. Bum bum. And uh, the uh, that night, uh, Theo has moved into Eleanor's room and they, they decide to have a sleepover because mm-hmm. Eleanor... Theo doesn't want Eleanor to be afraid, and immediately Theo gets her liquored up, uh, but lightly. Doesn't seem like eh. she's letting her sip the whiskey <laughs> or brandy. It's brandy. I'm sorry, it's brandy. Yes. I should point out. Um, well, it's the the most responsible drug. Yeah, this and is after the cold spot thing. Yeah. Oh, well. this is after this is after oh. the cold spot, and her looking towards the top of the. Uh, the window and being all disoriented and the camera literally going off the tripod and just going fucking bananas. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it is her first uh, real insistence to Dr. Marquay, like, no, 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 no. I don't want to be sent home. Don't send me home. Her big thing is don't send me home. Mm-hmm. Um, And that scene going off the tripod, that's not too unusual of this, of this particular moment in cinema, but the erraticness of it is so... Yeah and disorienting that it does feel like a step forward rather than a step in the same place. Um, and so all of this has happened. She and Theo are talking. They're painting their nails. They're drinking brandy. They're yep. getting into their history. And one by one, Ella, Theo breaks down the barrier and then makes this assumption, being the psychic that she is, I don't think that you killed your mother. And the 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 camera the, the Julie Harris and the music do this thing that I love, even though I'd understand if somebody hated this. The music cues up and she just turns her head. Yeah, <laughs> and I love it because I'm I'm a sucker for over dramatic moments like that when they're done properly, and I think this one does it perfectly because up to this point we haven't had the we haven't had the we've we've already been told of her feeling guilty about that but we've had no indication that there could be the possibility that Nell did it on purpose um which is where it seems like Theo's assumption is leading the audience down in yeah. for a certain moment um now of course we all know it's not it's not really there but it's just one more thing Theo does to get a rise slash flirt with her question mark i don't know (laughs) i don't know where this relationship is going i don't know where she thinks it's going but it's not it's not the it's not uh it's very uh early 60s informed view of lesbianism uh is what it seems like so it's uh, clearly something very much similar to a dracula's daughter than anything else where like there's a little bit more like a dominant versus somebody who's a little more mousy or something like that it's just yeah it's very. I think I think it's interesting because um, the 
podcast, Claire Bloom, who is amazingly sexy, doesn't matter what sex it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yet they play her in a role that people might consider ugly or like, yeah, cruel. And yeah. so, like, she's it's it's perfect casting in that respect, definitely. Um, yeah. And so we are getting to this second scare, which is my favorite scare in the movie. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, cue those sound effects again. This time we're going to add in some moaning. And, uh, <laughs> Sean, yeah, just send you photographs of my, my no, goosebumps. No, 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 Kev. You're going to enjoy every second of it. Oh, um, uh, yeah, sorry. I'm a, I'm a cruel monster. <laughs> anyway, play the, play the Kev like a fiddle, Zach. Do it. <laughs> This is little hitch talking. Play Kev like a fiddle here. Um, but no, um, we start off in this uh, enclosed shot. Darkness is surrounding um, uh, Nell mm-hmm. sitting, lying down with what we assume is on what we assume is the bed. And it keeps cutting back to a wall that is disorienting. <gasps> Looks like it has a face. It's just the worst wallpaper in the universe. <laughs> It's like anaglyptic gone mad. What yeah, the it's just, fuck is that? <laughs> Look, K- Trevor, what the hell were you thinking with this wallpaper? It only sold to that one fucking weird house <laughs> in Massachusetts. <laughs> we haven't sold a damn roll of this because you designed some freaky shit, sir. We, we, I can't we sold make money. one. One roll. I of Morty's Wallpaper Emporium can't do a business like this. You need to come up with some cowboys for children's walls, <laughs> flowers, some flowers for the for the wife's kitchen or whatever, and you know some baseballs and some titties for the for the for the man's office. The That's usual the, shit. Yeah, this is what Marty's Wallpaper Emporium was started for, and you're fucking it up. Uh, God damn, coming in with this elaborate Gregorian shit. Fuck you. <laughs> um, oh, Jesus. But, but, but it, it's really it weird works. because like, <laughs> I've watched episodes, uh, obviously, scenes afterwards, and this design is in all the wallpaper. Mm-hmm. It's just that it's only picked out for this particular scene. So it's yep, you there have to... all, all along. It's like on the Richard Johnson podcast. He tells you, you have to look at it frame by frame. <laughs> <laughs> And, I'd love uh, to listen to the Richard Johnson pod- podcast. Oh, God. Spon- sponsored by Squarespace. Uh, 10%, <laughs> 10% off if you can remember what the name of my alligator movie was. Uh, <laughs> and I've seen the, it. Okay, that's right. That's why Kev gets all the 50% off he wants on, on not only Squarespace, but mattress.com, <laughs> meundies.com, and dollarshaveclub.com. <laughs> that is this but I will get back to the wallpaper he's moving in on it he's kind of dutching the camera a little yep. bit he's rotating it in degrees we hear the moaning of what sounds like a man and then the moaning of a kid crying which is terrifying <gasps> oh, shit. as shit yes. that shit fucking unnerved mm. me in my house on Friday night when I was rewatching. I was like God damn it. I'm right. scared tonight and what's more she keeps thinking Theo's grabbing onto her um, and then, Zach, right? Yes, this is a mono soundtrack, right? Mm-hmm. This shouldn't have that impact. And I play it through a seven point one Dolby DTS system. Yep, this and, and Manx. Fuck <laughs> me. Ooh, this just terrifies me. 
the, the, I don't know what they've done to the sound design on this, but the bass on this, the booms and the moans, it is just a horrifying experience. <laughs> it just, I don't know what they did, but it's, it's special. It's, some of these sound designs. So you have the recent Blu-ray version. It sounds yes. like then the one the UK yeah. did. We have. It seems like we don't have the same elaborate version that you do out here. And I didn't well, check into it. I still have the DVD, so that's where I'm coming out of it. But. I had the VHS that I taped off Channel Four. Then I've got mm-hmm. the um, DVD that came out in Warner Brothers UK and US. Okay. Then I've got the Blu-ray that came out in Warner US, mm-hmm. which is a great disc. And then I've yep. got the Blu-ray that's a HMV Warner UK one. Okay. So, so then the one I have is the DVD one, which is still nice. It's got the commentary it on it. It's still nice, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I didn't get that same effect. Now, I also, the first time I was watching it that night, I was watching it with my headphones on. And my headphones kind of do it. They do a natural, mm. like, surroundish thing. And you're yep. right. I can feel it coming in different directions on a mono scale. It's not a is, good thing. <laughs> though, I, it's almost as if, though, the movie itself is haunted. And, I, I mean, that yeah. sounds like it's a joke. But, no, it's serious because it's it literally is impacting your brain and your focal point on it. It's like and, um, when there's a shot of a white door and you're hearing slams across this door and you you can feel the direction and mm-hmm. you think well, how the hell are they doing this this is a mono soundtrack what the hell but amazing fun fun fact here on the richard johnson podcast robert wise as meek as he was sold his soul to satan to create the greatest <laughs> sound imaginable <laughs> for more information on this story subscribe to my patreon <laughs> and yeah, that it it seems impossible, but the sound mixes on these um, later transfers do get varied in different directions. Obviously, the yep. Psycho one that came out in 4K <laughs> got everybody Ooh, on the internet angry, and rightfully <sighs> so. I still have not gotten my replacement disc, I, so I'm so I've just I've just imagined it doesn't exist, Kev, because why would they do that the first time? It seems pretty <laughs> stupid for a director that's made them a lot of money over the years to fuck it up that way. But I'm not in in Warner Brothers back pocket. So I don't know. <laughs> it's why I'm giving them shit right now. And this in the Jack Benny episode, you hear me bitch at them. <laughs> um but um or at least make a plea to them to be like, please release shit. I know it's in your goddamn vault. But anyway, this scare <laughs> keeps going on. Yes. And then eventually it hits its peak point where the lights go on and it's revealed that she's not in the bed. Oh. She's on a, a divan or like a, a love seat or something like that, like a lounge couch. Yeah. Yep. And um, Theo is clear across the room. So she keeps looking at her hand as she's waking up and she does this wonderful shot to the camera. It's the only real overplay. But it, but it's, but it's earned. It's earned. It's absolutely Whose earned. Whose hand was I holding? Whose hand was I holding? And then we, oh, we are further dr- driven down the world of madness. <laughs> and what's more, <laughs> things have reached a fever pitch for Nell, where she's she's losing her grip. At this point, she has not gone into the library yet, but uh, she. Uh, or Theo, 
uh, Markway and Swagger Luke have gone into the library a couple times, and Swagger Luke actually, at one point, he goes up to the spiral staircase and be like, I think I'm going to turn this into a nightclub. And he's making a <laughs> dig in a happening spot. I'm going to call it Haunted House, and it's going to be a great place to hold a uh, kooky college for uh, creepy vampires. And yo, um, No, he's – but they also find another book, uh, which is that Bible that we talk about where – Yep. Yeah, so like they're already discovering things around the house. They find the Fran- Saint, the statue of Saint Francis curing the lepers, and they all make allusions to it. And Theo cleverly goes like, "Oh, you're uh, yeah, the, you're clearly the dog, Luke, because that's what you are. A fu- <laughs> yes, a fucking male dog, a fucking a fucking mutt." <laughs> then she starts De Niro kicking him. Um, but yeah, the um, and actually she makes an observation when they see that statue about like, you ever notice how things appear in the corner just slightly when you look away <laughs> like, yep. and I'm just like you can't be scream yet that's not allowed <laughs> <laughs> but it's true she is alluding she's it's almost like Claire Bloom's giving horror film school 101 in one line she's just like fun <laughs> yep. fact if you have it happening in the corner it's much scarier than if you're just shoving you know a guy with a chainsaw uh, uh, guy with the chainsaw on your face the power you know like of uh, suggestion Power of suggestion. Again, I like both showing it and not showing it. It just well, depends on let's face the it, tone of the, the movie. Like we're saying yeah. about Texas Chainsaw, it's Toby Hooper. He's all about the power of suggestion. There's no yep. blood in that. You know, I thought it would be should be great if we just you know never saw really what went behind the door, and then I <laughs> you know just you know I, and I would just you know out in that Texas heat, you know, not, anything could be happening out there, and then and then I made Life Force, and I really don't know what was going on there other than I wanted to see some tits. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was this tired is a different of website. With, yeah, this is a different website. Yeah, and I just but anyway, I uh, see. Gee, uh, they so everything's going amok, and what's more, Nell's situation's about to get a hell of a lot worse, at least emotionally, because oh, who pop who pops up but Mrs. Markway herself, Grace. Now I don't know why I did that, but here's a weird connection, right? Because Richard Johnson was actually pipped to be uh, actually offered the job as James Bond really you're saying that I was and Lois Maxwell is obviously Miss Moneypenny so uh-huh. they would have been man and wife in this film and then man and prospective wife in the James Bond films well, but uh, you know you know what I wasn't gonna fucking allow that <laughs> <laughs> Richard Johnson gets to have the nice spooky movie. I got the problematic Hitchcock movie. No, I get to be Bond now. That's how this works. <laughs> That's how this works. You put That's me in the problematic Hitchcock movie, I get to be Bond for life. Or at least That's as long it. as I want to. That's <laughs> a really good Roger Moore episode you're doing there. Oh, God. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's funny, considering I've still never seen a Roger Moore Bond movie in my life. Because uh, I am oh, a weird... No. I'm a very weird individual, Kevin. You're all kind of wrong. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, I um, I like Timothy Dalton Bond as a fun, fun aside. Yeah. I do like him in his two films. I wish yeah. he had gotten to do He's more. He's perfect as a Bond. Um, Bo- Brosnan and Craig are who I grew up on technically because I'm you know a young shit. Yeah. But um, I liked Connery out of stability and respect. Even though I rewatched Doctor No. Problem so aside, hopefully. I like no. I, but I'll tell you, I like 
the idea that it is fully accepted that it is just a spy caper film of that era. Uh-huh. It's not trying to establish itself in the bomb aesthetic just yet because it doesn't know what that is yet. Nope. Um, as you get on, it gets sillier. But yeah. I know I do like Goldfinger because it's cute. Ace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's Aces. And Terrence Young's a great director, so I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna question that. But um, but anyway, away from Bond, but that would have been. Bizarrely, Goldfinger is the same year as this. Uh, no, 63. year after. Oh, 63? Oh, I thought it was 64 for Goldfinger. Oh, wow, no, then so this is the same year. So then, Things so then, so yeah, Lois Maxwell has a big year then, if that's the case. I'm going to look that up to confirm that, because uh, um, uh, I, I can't be say, asked to look it up. I just think... Mm. <laughs> nope, nineteen sixty. It's nineteen sixty-four. Um, it right. uh, pr- yeah, it's um, it comes out as a Christmas I'll movie. Oh, your Majesty here. and the Internet. <laughs> oh no, he cheated, Kev. He fucking cheated. I saw him from heaven. He fucking cheated and used his computer. <laughs> uh, but he, anyway, yeah. So Lois Maxwell, who is Miss Moneypenny, right here, she's skeptic, Mrs. Marquay, and she ain't afraid of no ghost. At least for now. <laughs> At least for now, because I know what's going to happen, and you know what's going to uh, happen. Yep. But the audience doesn't know yet because they haven't seen it yet. <laughs> and then she, and they, she actually, like, through through this, one, we get the revelation of the look of de- depression on Nell's face as it sets in that her unrequited romance with Dr. Marquay is never going to blossom at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's more, she they... Dr. Marquay is trying to tell her, like, this is not a good time. You have come at the worst possible moment of this experiment. Um, and wh- you can't be here. And she's like, well, bullshit, I can't. I want to see one of your ghost things once and for all. And mm-hmm. one thing leads to another. They bring up the nursery, which is the nursery we haven't really brought up. But that's where oh, Abigail Crane. Yes. Ab- that's where Abigail Crane died. And it's yep. also the one room in the house that they haven't been able to unlock. Um, Until it, but- now. Until now, because well, first they go up the stairs, and and Nell Nell suggests the nursery at first, and then she retracts it, going like, "I don't want to be a bitch." Yeah, Mrs. Marquay, don't go into the nursery. Theo doubles down on that. Luke, in a surprising turn, triples down on that, going like, "Look, yeah, I don't believe in this mumbo jumbo or whatever, but you know, there's probably some like you know mosquitoes in there or whatever, so I wouldn't <laughs> go in there." And, Spud Juju. He, he plays it off. It's almost like he's finally starting to learn, like, look, I may not believe in this, but I did almost fall down the staircase in the library at one point, yep. and, I, and I have been noticing odd things-ish. So maybe I can loosen my moral sphere a little bit here to be like, hey, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's not a ghost, but, you know, like a random coincidence, like a magician or something is running around the house. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just going to have another drink. And she goes like, bullshit, I'm going to this oh, nursery. And then, yeah, Martini. Oh God, I want, I want him kind of having a martini throughout the entire movie, and then especially <laughs> in the final line, especially in the final line. But they, he alludes to like, besides, we can't even get it unlocked, and then that's when they see the door is already open, and you're like, oh shit. And yes. the nur- the nursery is close to the cold spot. Right. Now, what in we the haven't house. noted, what we, what we haven't noted uh, up until now, is that um, Basil Expedition Exposition. Has yes. actually said that all the doors close by themselves. 
Yep. Now, we know that the nursery is closed and locked by uh, uh, the Dudley family. The Dudley family, yeah. Yes. Because they're, they're the only ones who have the keys. And yep. also, Mrs. Dudley's the one who blabbed to Mrs. <laughs> yeah, Mrs. for five Mrs. bucks. Mrs. Markway. <laughs> yeah, for five bucks. That's a cheap price, man, in America. Like, five dollar! Five dollar! Right? <laughs> then again, especially in today's economy, five dollars is five dollars. I'm taking it. But... <laughs> Five dollars will get you everything, apparently. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'll tell <laughs> you Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> that's a different hey, story. Well, that's a, that's a story for another day. Yeah. But, but, but yes, it has been locked by her. All the other doors have been opening and, un- uh, and closing by themselves. Mm-hmm. He attributes it to the angularness of the house, but really it's the yes. ghost. And like I said, um, everything's predicted by his um, opening texts, you know, he's, he's basically saying that, uh, you know, this is going to close, that's going to close, mm-hmm. it's all fine. Yep, and he's just like, you know, like, I'm I'm not saying I'm as omniscient as Amy Adams in uh, <laughs> Arrival, but I was Amy Adams before Amy Adams. I'm much sexier, too. <laughs> um, but... They go into the nursery actually, and they they see like there's nothing there. Wink. Apart from and, there. Yeah, in fact, like yeah, you know, just nothing but cobwebs and must and dust and you know, <laughs> Luke was Luke's just like yeah, but it might you know suffocate your lungs or whatever. And the uh the, the, the basically it's just been determined she's staying here. It's not even a debate or a question that she's going to stay in this house and. That night, they're in, um, I believe it's the the library, because they're going over the book. They're going over the book where the the, the dirty drawings are done by yes. Hugh Crane, going like, this will teach my daughter to not be a whore or whatever. Yeah, I don't to know. go down to the library, yeah. Yeah, because, exactly. The, because they've the, got the, the um, uh, spiral staircase in there. Which yeah, I don't think we talked about. We've talked a little bit about it because mm. of the hanging at the beginning, but yeah. we haven't talked. We did, and, and I did bring up that um, Luke never nearly fell off of it, but then he landed like a cat because he's a cool cat, Kev. Um, <laughs> he is indeed. I'm a swinging cat. That's why I have cool an instinct for survival. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I land on all fours like the fine feline I am. <laughs> I'm Russ Tamblin for cool and. <laughs> And yeah, but like, but that staircase is a haunted like pathway to hell for a lot of people in this house, and something about the book instigates Nell to basically just be like, "You crane, you're a dirty old man, and I, I hope that you burn yeah. him." Yeah, she loses the shit. And and Hugh Crane hears that from the Great Beyond and goes like, "Well, that that's just rude." <laughs> I didn't hope that for you, Eleanor, but now I'm going to make sure these ghosts definitely take you. Um, (laughs) And so, and that's when the third big scare kicks in. That's it. The thing is, you think about it and you think, oh, Christ, this isn't a film about set pieces. And the more you think about it, you think, Christ, there is so many set pieces in this film. Mm-hmm. And this one might be the most visually interesting from a modern mm-hmm. standpoint. Yes. Because 
I'm gonna we're gonna have a plenty of fun with this one. So <laughs> banging banging at the door begins again. Kev gets scared oh, again. Jeez. More sounds more sounds happen that scare Kev. And, <laughs> <laughs> and what's more, the door starts to warp. Oh and, my fucking god. Well, here, now I, I will calm you down a little bit, Mr. Kev, by no. I've been informing you of that kind oh, old no, no, no. Yeah, settle down. Kind Mr. Wise explains to you that it's, it's all a trick, see? You know, it's a laminated wood that you had other fellows, uh, grip union, uh, union grips most likely, uh, pushing on it with a two-by-four. And that's how it looks. And oh, in the commentary... Okay. And in in the commentary, Richard Johnson says, "Like yes, as you could plainly see, it's a, it's a trick door, and uh, if you could watch it from the other end, it's quite amusing." Um, this is um, we'll take a moment to hear from our, our lovely sponsor, Severin Home Entertainment. And, <laughs> and the but that warp in the door is a combination not just of the trick door, not just of the sound effects, but also the twenty eight millimeter lens, which is creating yeah. that warped view. The 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 specific imagery that I draw this to, to a to a film that did creep me the hell out with this imagery, was Nightmare on Elm Street when Freddy pokes through the wall, um, of oh, Na- above yes. Nancy's house, above yeah. Nancy's room, and mm-hmm. they use that. That's like uh, that's like a latex, like that's like a rubber Ye- thing going. Yeah, but Wes Craven clearly saw that and said, like, we'll say this monster could. Um, uh, poke through there the way that uh, that door's warping there now that i think that's a very solid idea robert do that and that's yeah, it's basically um how can you do something so practically that will look so interesting and realistic i mean i don't understand here at the richard johnson podcast how you had it without computers I mean, without <laughs> without computers without computers how in the world could you make Amazing. anything supremely interesting like yeah no this is the era of practical effects the people. sound as well the sound because mm-hmm. obviously you got the the door bowing yeah. and then you've got that sound of the creaking which mm-hmm. just emphasizes the whole stress of the whole situation just yep and <laughs> the and the and that banging ends up moving towards the nursery and there's yes. clearly there's clearly shit going down in there <laughs> Nell don't want to go there <laughs> yeah no but well she's gonna go in there anyway because Nell, <laughs> Nell Nell uh-huh. don't give a fuck no more she's already lost the love of her life <laughs> quotes and um and she <laughs> she's tired of Theo's shit. And I don't know what she thinks of Luke, but it doesn't matter because Luke's just having a martini why, in the corner. Why? Why? Why would you ever be t- tired of the th- uh, Theo shit? I don't. I don't I, get I, that, so. Well, I think I don't know if she knows how to read Theo, but I think Theo knows how to read her. It's kind of weird. Like it's just like I don't know. Like I think she cares for Theo, but I think she's also like unsure of how to wrestle with her own insecurities yeah. in this. It's like how do you process that? <laughs> yeah. It's you know, like I used to have a hard time processing sarcasm and then slowly <laughs> but surely I got it. But it took it took it took a while where I used to be like, oh I should go fuck myself, huh? Uh well geez. <laughs> okay. Whatever you say, brother. Anyway the uh the the Eleanor goes and sees that Grace has gone. Uh, Grace has gone. No, not that John Cusack movie that Clint Eastwood scored. Just Grace has disappeared from the room. And uh, it's gotten worse by the next morning. They can't find Grace. 
and she is consumed by the house. She yep. dances with that statue of St. Francis and calls it Hugh Crane. Ha ha. And goes like, we got rid of her, Hugh. And then you hear this dance. Now, this reminded me of Curse of the Cat People a lot, especially the dancing in the uh, yard that the little yep. girl does. Um, I was just like, oh, he's doing the 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 cinema, not cinema scope, but widescreen glory version of that moment in Curse of the Cat People, which is not a widescreen film. It's four three, four by three film with done on modest means. This is scale with a big set piece in the middle of that statue, and it um it it lends to the creepiness. We see this kind of creepy all over the place nowadays. Like this is not unusual at all. Um and then that leads her to be like, I'm gonna go to the top of the library, up those rickety staircases, that <laughs> staircase, and I'm gonna join this house. And thus completing her consumption of the house, which once again, we're dealing with the whole idea. Is this a ghost story? Is it in her mind? Well, can't it be both? And this this is where really the house unabashedly in the midst of all that was starting to destroy itself too, Kev. Yep. I noticed like that I, I right away I was just like oh fucking steel Spielberg stole that shit for poltergeist. God damn it. <laughs> well, this was bizarrely one of the films that I thought of that was inspired by this film. And yeah. yeah. Spielberg is a big fan of the haunting. He's not the only one, but like he's he's apparently Robert Wise says that Steven Spielberg said it was the scariest movie he's ever seen and I I uh, I believe that. I, I, can't, I can't believe that. <laughs> I I believe that only to a point because I'm also there's enough interviews where I've heard from other filmmakers where they're like, you know, Spielberg would love to do dark shit, but you know, look at the image he set up for himself. He can't do that fucking shit. <laughs> you can't let him go yeah. make a slasher movie. People fucking go nuts. Look, look at ET. That's shit. <laughs> oh, that's actually I take it back. He did make a scary movie. It's called ET, and I. <laughs> I don't hate that movie. It's just there's a better Alien movie that year. Yes. It's a great movie <laughs> about the depths, the depths of paranoia and Kurt Russell with his beard. <laughs> Damn it. I'm not getting into that right now, Kevin. I'm not getting into it. I'll be here all night. Let's get snowy. <laughs> yeah. No. Oh, God. Let's just sit here with a bottle of root beer and wait it out. And then, <laughs> and she goes up to the tower, the, st- the, the top of the staircase anyway. And Why? <laughs> because the house is calling to her, Kev. She um, she she has become consumed by Hell House. She Hell House. She doesn't want to leave. Oh, my but she also doesn't house. want the ghost to harm her. This is the this is the compromise. The house yep. is like, look, I'm not going to like permanently get rid of you. You just gotta join our little group. Like <laughs> that that's that's what she does. But she's going up the stairs. We get that. Uh, uh, the staircase stuff. We wanted to talk a little bit more about the staircase because it goes rickety. Yes. Um, because in the first shots, it's not really like in the opening scenes of the movie, it's not. Uh, Rich, Russ Tamblin talked about this a little bit. Uh, he said that um the the staircase itself was held by pipe sections, which in the middle of those pipe sections was a thick cable. Yeah. And you could tighten or loosen the control of that cable to determine the rickety determine the ricketiness of the stairs but those stairs were safe 
as a cloud to walk yeah. on, realistically. Um, Which is amazing. It just, mm-hmm. you, you look at the constru- construction of the thing and think, Christ almighty, yes. Because yeah. this is like the fairground rides, you know, where you've got the yeah. really thick cables between them. Yeah, and it's industrial, so that thing realistically yeah. ain't moving. And yeah. actually, as they're climbing up, you talked about earlier about the guide rail, the camera and whatnot. Yes. Richard, Richard Johnson, this is, I'm not going to do the joke with him. He did allude to something really fascinating in the commentary where he talked about like, and this is a particular moment of uh, NAR, no acting required. And he alluded to another story where he was on another set where they were on a cliff. Yeah. And the other actor was overexpressing and the director yelled out, um, so-and-so, NAR. And so he described basically this situation was an NAR situation where you're climbing <laughs> up stairs that feel rickety. You don't need to act. Yeah. You're, you're, you're living it. Not um, required. <laughs> yeah. And they get to the, 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 she gets closest to the top and he tries to grab her and uh, getting, trying to get her to go down. She actually like leans back and forth matrix style a little bit. Like it's like, it's kind of unnerving to watch her wobble around the top. Like, I was, like, getting the chills watching it because she, like, bends back. That one shot where she's bending super far yes. back. And I was just, like, losing it. But she, he agrees, basically. Like, she, eventually, she, she's like, okay, I'm going to go down. And then yeah. the trap door, there, there's a trap door that opens up and Grace's face comes through it. And she fucking flips her shit. And thankfully, <laughs> Dr. Markway rescues you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I would, too. If if Miss Moneypenny, looking like she <laughs> yes. has been beaten up by James Bond, came through that trap door, oh, yeah, right. I'd be very scared. Now, here's a weird thing, right? Because I always think that the marriage of Grace and um, Dr. Markway would have been amazing because... Um, uh, Richard Johnson was actually offered the uh, the role of block Bond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it turned and, it down. Yeah, I I I I guess you wonder why, but well, leave no, it up to the face. Like you said, he didn't want to do the um, the whole thing of doing loads and loads and loads of films. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and he does say in, down. Yeah, and he didn't. He did say in the commentaries, "It's like I don't really like doing things that don't challenge me." And I, I don't. Yes, it didn't yeah, need to that, be tied down. But then he did um, oh, a gator God. movie. <laughs> no, he also did all uh, the Danger Route from the nineteen sixty-seven film, nineteen sixty-five film. Uh, uh-huh. It was an amicus film. And oh, he, really? Oh, okay. Yeah, and he was a Bond kind of. Thing on that, oh, and it's okay, really so weird because, like, he could have been a Bond villa, a Bond, a Bond, or like a figure, or like like a Bond adjacent figure, kind of like kind of vibe there. Like, so yeah, yeah. So well, he he, he 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 could have been a Bond, but he wasn't. He just decided to do this old thing, and it didn't it, work, and he just it, carried on and. <laughs> Ignored it. <laughs> that, it's really it's, weird. It's really it, weird. It's, it, it sounds like he doesn't really have many regrets, though. 
Oh, no, no. Yeah. He doesn't give two fucks. Keep keep in mind, everybody here, I was in the Great Alligator River. Zombie (laughs) 2. Island of the Fishmen. The Monster Club. I did a segment there called Vampire Story. I have no fucking regrets here on the Richard Johnson podcast. No is given. And my last film was The Man Who Knew Infinity, a movie I don't really remember because I don't think anybody does. Um, but um, but it has Dev Patel in it, and I did like Slumdog Millionaire before I passed away. It was a great movie. But anyway, the, the decision has been made for Nell by Richard Johnson. No, 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 you're getting the hell out of here. I should have done this a long <laughs> yeah. time ago. I've been very fucking selfish with my own studies. I should have known that your mental health comes first. But, um, you know, science. And so he, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so she, they get her to go out of the house. Now, at this point, it's important to Luke. Luke's going to take her in the car or go with her in the car. Um, and she's originally going to drive, but then Eleanor's going like, at least let me drive it. It's half mine at least. Um, mm-hmm. she keeps pleading. Don't, don't send me back home. This is the, the only time anything's ever happened to me. Again, that line, the only time anything's ever happened to me. And, you know, Luke is going with her. Luke is like his transformation has gone from swagger to like, I, I don't know. I'm starting to get a little concerned. Like, should we let her drive on her own? Um, and what's more, they, uh, Ellen, Luke, uh, uh, realizes that something's been left in the house. He goes out and then that compels Eleanor to just drive the car on her own. Now at this point, they still haven't found grace yet. Keep in mind. Um, and she starts driving the car, with the intent, basically, of finding a way to stay at Hill House by eluding them or evading them. Except no. Because she drives. The voiceover keeps going on. Like, they can't leave me. I belong in Hill House. This is the first time anything has ever happened to me. Something will happen to me. Kev's childhood car starts spinning out of control. <laughs> and it, it finally breaks into the final motif of, is this in her head? Or is this a ghost? And my answer is, again, the same. It's kind of both. Because there's enough to drive Nell to this madness. So there is a way you read this film in which this has all been in her head, except for the fact that after the crash, we get the final scene. Um, so I was wondering, Kev, like, how have you read this film over the years from those angles of is it in her head versus it is a ghost? I've always thought of it as it's a ghost. And this is somebody that doesn't believe in ghosts. <laughs> Which is really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> This is the first time anything's happened to me that's not ghost related because there's no such thing <laughs> as ghosts. And like and you know, like I think the I think her I think her mental illness is real. I also yes. think the ghost is real. That's why I think they coexist. Because she's suffering from trauma from her experience with her mother, the guilt that she feels from her mother. It's it's a it's a different form of like you know youthful trauma or young adult trauma that then compels her to the that allows the ghosts in. But again, 
it would be foolhardy of us to try and explain the ghosts and how it works and whatnot because that would be against the spirit of the film per se. <laughs> spirit. But for, <laughs> but for <laughs> Star, <laughs> yeah, exactly. The spirit of, yeah, uh, I Richard Johnson approve of that. Five stars <laughs> on iTunes and on uh, Stitcher Radio. Uh, we love that, dear. And you know, but the thing is, is that ultimately, is that the when it crashes, it's again, it's it's a back to one for the first Mrs. Hugh Crane. Um, the car is in disrepair she is clearly dead Marquay, luke and theo all catch up with it they see that it's dead he notes that the tree was the same con it was the same tree that killed the first mrs crane so it's all come back to that full circle which is something that was picked up on imdb and went oh yeah but you know the the tree would have grown over by now but it's like <laughs> Yeah, but it's supposed yeah. to be supernatural. So and and, al- and also, I really don't care what the, I don't care what the random user on IMDb thinks. <laughs> I really, I really don't. Uh, yeah. Anyway, the only th- one thing that really does stick in my mind is uh-huh. why does Grace come into the the whole thing? Mm, I I think you have to explain that. I think, well, no, you don't have to. And have her own room? Yeah, I... I mean, she's married to Markway, so why... Well, I think, I think they're on the rocks. Hey! In Neil Diamond style. Yeah, exactly. Love on the rocks. It's, yes, exactly. It's rub, It's love on the rocks. Mint. And then Luke. And then Luke goes, "Hey, I know I'm supposed to be changing my beliefs here, but that's a really clever gag." And, oh. <laughs> and you know the 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 you know I think that they're just like in a weird just. They seem distant anyway. Yes, she does. Definitely. She doesn't. She doesn't go on his ghost expeditions with him. <laughs> and would and, you? And he, and no, Mel. <laughs> I think I'd be foolhardy enough to join Richard Johnson on a death wish quest. That that'd be interesting. That'd be interesting. He would yeah. certainly not be boring. He wouldn't be boring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he would certainly fas- He would fascinate you with bullshit talk until. <laughs> it- and also, this is the thing I kept in mind with the Nell thing. He is hitting on Nell. He yes. is hitting on Nell. Even even if he's clearly trying to be nice, I'm just like, yeah, you're hitting on Nell. Eh, you're married, but, but I don't know what your deal is. I I don't know what the situation is because it's not clear. Because technically, it doesn't matter. But regardless, Grace is now she has saw she saw a face, and now she's a believer. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> because she looks like she's been through fucking hell, and. I want to know. I want a side sequel with her little adventures through the Jack Torrance-esque maze that is this grounds of the of the estate, because she looks like it just went beyond the trap door thing. Like, it looks like she just got rollicked around and it's nuts. Um, but anyway, she's just like, no, 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 don't go, but don't go into the g- 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 ghost like this, and really, like Lois Maxwell, as great as she is, she is the only like 
on the nose character in the movie. Yeah, I don't mind it at this point. We're at the end. It's a ghost really has already killed Mel. Like, I always think of Lois Maxwell as being the furthest to the logical, and then you've got sliding scale. So you've got yeah. like us two that are on the um, the the kind of yeah you you know you can you can buy this place for yeah. a, a quick dollar. Uh, I don't yeah. care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's just like, I, 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 yeah. And meanwhile, like everybody's just basically like, I mean, Theo makes the very, very uh, astute observation of just like she kind of uh, she she's she's where she wanted to be. She's with Hill House now. Like, yeah. and there's a, definitely a clear indication. They've had other scenes prior to this where she, their relationship kind of dissolves. Yeah. But she's like she cares for Nell, even though she's being oddly aggressive with her advances on her. She's she's she cares about her, and there's a there's a remorse there. And then finally, we get my favorite character turn in the movie because earlier in the film, Swagger Luke basically <laughs> dismissed the notion of sowing the ground with salt to avoid spirits from rising above. Um, and this is uh, finest line in the movie. And he and then he just looks up at that house. He drops the Dean Martin facade, and he says. Somebody ought to burn that house down and sow the earth with salt. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is beautiful. The non-believer <laughs> character who nowadays yep. is usually kill count fodder. Um, yes. Going like, there's no such thing as Jason Voorhees. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, and that that's that's his fate. Um, or there's no such thing as a scream movie killer. <laughs> and then that. that that character gets a full-on transformation. Now, whether regards you believe something or not is is irrelevant. The point is, is that like it's a side character that gets a full arc in a movie that's already heavy with ethereal psychological terror, yeah, and different character underpinnings and homosexual subtext and every kind of you know theme under the sun that Roger Wise can slip in there quietly, like the nice kind man that he is, and so. It's interesting to see that even Russ Tamblin gets this huge turnaround at the end. Um, and uh, and it's something I didn't notice when I first saw this movie years ago. Like, I was just like, oh, it's just a standard movie line. Now, being older, being able to read films better, that line is one of the best lines in the movie, hands down. Um, and then we get the final uh, monologue of oh. the film, Theo remarks that they they basically bring us out and we get cheesy horror titles to give us the end. Um, we have just been through a rollicking roller coaster ride, Kev, through a horror film that has no blood, no gore, mm-hmm. no boobs, no, no, anything that would constitute, at the very least, an 80s horror movie. Yeah. Uh, t- today, I think, I was going to say, ultimately, today we are dealing with a renaissance of films like The Haunting because there's a lot of great horror films that are like R-rated primarily for violence or uh, for um for language. But they yeah. are not, but the violence factor is some violence or violence, well, but not extreme violence. Well, you know? when The Haunting was originally released, it was next. 
mm-hmm. which is UKX is a very hard rating to actually achieve. Yeah. I mean, now it's only releases a 15, but... Yeah, he, here in the... Here in the states, it it's labeled as like a PG, I believe. I want to double that, check that, that. Makes sense because there's nothing. You know, you got nothing like uh, um, blood, drug references, terror. I mean, the only the only offensive thing in the movie is Luke's behavior, and outside of that, <laughs> outside of that, it's pretty low key. You know, it's again very much in that Luton mold. That Luton, the Luton pictures were able to get away with a way more than this movie. Even yeah, yeah. There's blood technically in the Leopard Man. There's blood in yes. Luton films. <laughs> this movie has no blood. This movie has scratches. That's the most it has. Um, but this film was released to an unsuspecting audience ready for a good scare. It opened in New York and Los Angeles on the September on September eighteenth, nineteen sixty three. Uh, film critic Dora Jane Hamblin related how four of her female friends went to see the film. She proved to be so frightening that afterwards the group spent 15 minutes looking for the contents of their purses, which <laughs> spilled out onto the floor over the course of the movie due to the women jumping out of their seats in fear. Perfect. In, in Houston, Texas. Um, oh, good, a uh, good, a Texas story. A local cinema promoted the film as so chilling that it held a contest to see which of the four patrons could sit all the way through at a midnight screening. The prize was $100. And um, But despite all these stunts, Kev, it was only about an average success at the box office. On a budget of $1.05 million, oh. it made $1.02 million. Now, it did recoup its receipts. The opening to mixed reviews is interesting there's a uh, the the consensus at the time was that it was a stylish film, but had major flaws in the plot and lacked excitement. Uh, Variety called the acting effective. Uh, Davis Bolton's cinematography extraordinarily dexterous and ex- visually exciting, and Elliot Scott's production design of the monstrous house most decidedly the star of the film. Um, however, the unnamed reviewer of Variety felt that Giddings' screenplay had major shortcomings in that the plot was incomprehensible at points and that the motivations for the characters was poor. Um, I disagree with that. Now, yes. we're going to move on. We'll move on to my favorite, my my favorite, my all-time favorite, Mr. Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, has cited The Haunting as one of the most highly regarded haunted house fil- films ever produced. But he surmised that there was no point to it. Once again, proving that Bosley Crowther doesn't know his ass from a hole in the ground. <laughs> I'm really tired of pulling up these reviews, Kev, because every time I read, it does. Every time I read Bosley Crowther's words, I make him. I want to make him eat his own words. Uh, but he's dead, <laughs> and there's nothing I can do about that. Um, writing for uh, the Atlantic, uh, Pauline Kale. Another nemesis of mine because of something she did to that wonderful, <laughs> eventually fat man. Um, Pauline Kael called the film moderately elegant and literate and expressive, but criticized Russ Tamblin for being feeble and cowardly cl- comic. But to that's which Russ, what it's supposed to be. 
<laughs> yeah, to which Russ Tamlin replied, say, that's not cool. Also, why are you trying to destroy Orson Welles' reputation? It makes no <laughs> sense. Also, you used bad journalism and didn't back up anything with facts. Um, <laughs> oh, I love film school, Russ Tamlin. <laughs> this Dean Martin. Um, she she confi- considered the film superior to Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, which made Hitch go, what the fuck, bro? And then... <laughs> uh, yet didn't consider it to be a great film. Kale said, this is what she said, it wasn't a great movie, but I certainly wouldn't have thought it could have offend it could offend anyone. Yet part of the audience at the haunting wasn't merely bored, it was hostile, as if the movie, by assuming interest they didn't have, made them feel resentful or inferior. I've never felt this in an audience towards crude bad movies. But few scattered people but a few scattered people at the haunting were restless and talkative, the couple sitting near me arguing, the man threatening to leave, the woman assuring him that nothing something would happen. In their terms they were cheated nothing happened and of course they mi- missed what was happening all along perhaps because of nervous impatience or primitive notion that real things are physical um so clearly I, even though i have my disagreements with Paul me- pauline kale and her ethics she's correct there's an audience here that wasn't paying attention yes um they weren't and, uh, watching the film <laughs> yeah they weren't watching the film they were going to be like where's the monster where's vincent price <laughs> Was what, what, Edith? What the fuck? Why? Why'd you drag Look, me to this bullshit? I, I watched this other guy's films, and he had a massive robot from space, and what? it was crazy. Where are the Where are the other crazy uh, ki- gang kids singing in the streets? Yeah. Like, uh, aren't they gonna do that? But in a haunted house, I thought this was what it was. <laughs> Where's that West dog Sides. and the the guy that's always stoned? Yeah, <laughs> I don't also, understand. Yeah, this is like when you took me to Curse of the Cat People, and I'm like, there's no cat people in this, Edith. What the hell? Um, <laughs> that Val Luton character's a goddamn liar. Um, but duh, but the film has grown over the years, obviously. Yeah. One, it scared Kev to death. But number two, <laughs> yeah, it, um, <laughs> um, uh, and I, it's said with love. But uh, director Martin Scorsese placed The Haunting first on his list of the 100 scariest yes. horror films of all time. <laughs> Richard Johnson says that's well, I guess Robert Wise and him both say this, that Steven Spielberg considers The Haunting one of the seminal films of his youth and that it was the scariest film ever made. Um, it has gone from the uh, in the rough guide to film 2007. Richard Armstrong called it one of the most frightening films ever made and said that Julie Harris's performance is played with intensity that is frightening in and of itself. Uh, the Guardian ranked it as the 13th best horror film of all time. Uh, not not all critics think uh, so highly of the film. Uh, Neil Labute has stated that he thinks that the film is overrated. <laughs> and my response is, I've seen your films, Mr. Labute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say. I'm sure he's a... I'm sure he's a Wait. fine theatrical. Per- I, I know he. I know he does some good work in the theater, but I am not going to. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. Currently, the film has an 86 percent on Rotten Tomatoes, based on 42 contempor- uh, 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 modern reviews. The film was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Director, Robert Wise, which is astounding. That that blows my mind away. Mm. Um, and lastly, as you had alluded to in 2010, Cinema Retro hosted a screening of the film at Eddington Park, where it is reported that Richard Johnson closed the doors and made all the patrons stay inside for a night of torture after the movie was <laughs> just kidding um, and uh, in 1990, this is an updated thing on this, in 1990 um, a, a little um, 
motherfucker named Ted Turner announced that he would be colorizing black and white motion oh, pictures to make nice. them to, to make them more pleasing to the audience. Yeah, I know you you wanted to watch <laughs> Citizen Kane in color, didn't you? The announcement ex- generated obviously it made a lot of people angry. Orson Welles once said, "Tell that idiot to keep his crayons off my damn movie." And <laughs> Turner, uh, touring the as they were touring the colorization facilities facilities as members of the Directors Guild. Robert Wise learned that he was colorizing the haunting and he was able to prevent the coloring by pointing in his contract, which stated that the picture could only be in black and white. So the contract yes. saved the haunting. In your um, face too. But it could not save the haunting from being remade, Kev. Oh, don't it talk couldn't. to me about that. Oh, well, well, I'll... I'll I'll bring up the fact that Owen Wilson gets his head kicked across the... <laughs> across the <laughs> right. And my, uh, my, I've got, I've my got co- a really good friend, uh, Ben. Um, ben Taylorson uh, from Rated H. Yep, I love Ben. saying that I will, uh, I will have to watch this. Yeah. Like, it's, um, that that no. scene, Kev, Brad Haig of Real Nerds suggested that... Has anybody done a video of that scene where uh, over that image of his head getting kicked around that it goes, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I don't think that's happened and it needs to happen. But yes, um, John DeBonts, uh, who I, I don't think John DeBonts a terrible director. I think this movie just kind of went through some shit. Um, and uh, there was a production hell through this. Wes Craven was attached at one point. Yeah. Spielberg technically is attached to this movie and there's a lot of talk that says that he came in and ghost directed some scenes to fix things. Occasionally. Regard- yeah. Regardless, the movie was panned. Um, the, the, the consensus was that it was sophisticated effects that failed to offset awkward performances in an uneven script. So <laughs> it's just like, I just, I, I haven't rewatched it in a while. I mean, like it's, it's a movie that I saw once and I've let it go at that. It does um, have I, a score by Jerry Goldsmith. So take I really, it. I really should investigate. But the good news—the good news of soundtracks—is you can listen to the soundtrack without watching the movie. Good point. <laughs> yes. Thank you. That's <laughs> there are. That, that's why CDs exist. Yes! <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I mean, well, or vinyl's back now, and I guess you could. Woo-hoo! I'm sure the haunting soundtrack is available on iTunes because they kind of have everything. Kind of, I say kind of. There's not. <laughs> a ton of stuff that they there's a ton of stuff they still don't have but it's not their fault it's just that soundtracks of those movies weren't really made um but anyway this film yeah uh, kev uh, first of all i want to thank you for coming down and chatting with me for nearly four hours on the haunting oh my god Um, yeah no problem (laughs) but um and i want you definitely back on this show for uh, other horror fare or even any other genre but before we let you go yeah, I'm. You're gonna be down. Like you're gonna be called back like nearly a week now. Going like, Kev, I got our next film. <laughs> um, but really quickly, apart from scaring the pants out of you as a kid, what do you think the finest legacy? Um, th- what is the legacy that the haunting leaves behind for us as a modern audience? Um, the others. I reckon mm. the others is probably the best sort of soundtrack. Well, soundtrack sa- film that's sort of um, works from this because like it works from sound mm-hmm. like utilizing the sound effects yes in mm-hmm. just a much just the same as what this does um, you know you, you get a lot of the stuff that's over the uh, 
top row, the the you get a lot of um. Oh God, I might see. I don't know how to breathe it. There is a there, but there in the others there is a bit of a, like a, a there's a a feeling of unease because of the way the sound is placed. Is yeah. what I remember and recall. It's from all it. all about the sound design. Yeah, I and mean, I think that. Yeah, that would agree with that actually, and I haven't seen that film in a while, but I do remember it creeping the shit out of me as a youngster. Yeah. So, um, so and then I would, I would go for that. Okay, um, I'll tell you that um, the Conjuring came up yes. to mind a lot. Yeah. The first Conjuring specifically, um, even though that first Conjuring leaves the house a bunch, um, there's something about the feeling of that aesthetic and that era. And the idea of what you don't see being the most um, scary and terrifying. Mm. I'm also going to go with Insidious, which does take place primarily in its own one locations, which is another James Wan property. Um, Now, it's combining a lot of different things into a blender. But something that James Wan has done is kind of tapped into a combination of what Wise Innovated combined with... Uh, the things that have developed in that genre over time, whether through things like Amityville or um, Poltergeist itself, where you could show more, like you can show yeah. a Darth Sidious or a Darth, a Darth Maul looking figure, mm-hmm. you know, grinding his fingernails and with while well, Tiny Tim plays. Um, and then the other one is actually like I think that. We just sat here talking about a film where nothing scary is seen on screen beyond the things that are in our mind. I think that uh, um, uh, the things that are scarier in your mind that you don't see has become much more prevalent today and has a better resurgence today, primarily thanks to indie film. Um, I I think because of the fact that budgets are low, practical effects are expensive, filmmakers are having to come up with ideas that are scary from an ethereal and psychological complex while still being traditional horror films and not a psychological thriller. There's always a toad line. People can pick and choose their things on the genres, but um, like I said, I would go to something like February, AKA the black coat's daughter um, by Osgood Perkins, who's a cat who would obviously know what a horror film is. Cause look at the lineage. Um, but uh, that, uh, and then also I, I do feel that, there are elements of the haunting that appear from a practical effects standpoint and also sound effects standpoint. I know that there are elements of get out that utilize sound effects to an alarming degree. Yeah. Um, like an amazing degree, like really, really like things moving in and out. I don't, Jordan Peele's never listed it as an example per se, but like, I think that, there's a lineage of just natural progression that yeah. comes with something like the haunting. Um, and he's already attested to liking things Polanski ish or like a step for wives that influenced that. Yeah. So, um, so there's also ghost stories from 19. 19- <clears throat> Sorry. There's also ghost stories from 2018, which is, yes. um, again, very much in your mind. There's not a lot of the shown. Yes, I wanted to bring this up. Let me quickly pull it up because I want people to understand that this movie is not just something I rave about on Twitter. Because <laughs> I, I, so my my experience with this is interesting because I picked it up on a blind buy after realizing that I had missed it in the theater. But Ghost Stories, 
um, is an, uh, I don't know if it's technically an anthology film per se. It's, it certainly operates along yeah, those lines, but there is, yeah. but there isn't, but there's an overarching narrative to yeah. it. Um, but it's, um, it's a film by Andy Neiman, Neiman. um, and Jeremy yeah. Nyman, sorry, yeah. Our Andy Nyman and Jeremy Dyson. Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm American. I don't pronounce things well. Oh, that's fine. I mean, <laughs> um, but it's based on a stage play that they did, which I got to tell you, Kev, I want to see this stage play more than I want anything in my goddamn life. Right, now, because we, the thing is, the stage play was going off in a time when it was all in the South. So, really? It, it, it's really annoying because, like, it's a film that's based in the North. And... Um, when the film came yeah. out, I was just like, oh, my God, I am so ready for this. <laughs> it's amazing. It's an amazing oh, film, and it absolutely works because it's... there's so many places that I see there that are perfect places. I know these places. So you recognize these places. Yes. You understand yeah. the locations. And, like... Something that's amazing about the film. So Andy Nyman's in the movie as yeah. well. Like, but yeah, Paul Whitehouse, Alex Lothar, and Martin Freeman, amongst <laughs> others. Paul Whitehouse. Mar Paul oh. Whitehouse is great in it. Oh, um, he's scary. I, this is the, uh, he is, and this is also an testament to my you know penchant for liking all things that are that are you know spoon fed to me and as an American audience. I yeah. love Martin Freeman in that movie as Priddle. It's I amazing. think yeah that that that. <laughs> That shit scares me when he oh, turns Jesus the gun on Christ. himself. When he turns the gun on himself, I lost my shit <laughs> in my own chair. In my own chair, Kev. Um, but that's a movie that relies primarily on a psychological element. Now, to mm -hmm. talk any further about it would spoil the movie a little bit. Uh, so I'm not going to do that. But um, I, even though I just spoiled Martin Freeman shooting himself, <laughs> what, is, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? Martin Freeman's ashamed of me as he, yeah. Martin Martin Freeman's ashamed of me as he should be, <laughs> as he sits in his mansion going like, well, I mean, sure, <laughs> I can't do a Martin Freeman, so it's not going to happen today, guys. Um, but anyway, so that's that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Yesteryear Valley Who Review, a an episode that has gone deeper into the horror realm than we have before. It's a subject that we're, we're it's we've gone from beyond to the great beyond hp <laughs> lovecraft's from beyond exclusively now on scream factory and is but it is a subject we're going to continue to explore and actually kev i'll just shout it out right now can you come back for some val luton <laughs> come back for val luton I'm i'll find a good film for you definitely definitely up for that Maybe I'll just submit you to the Body Snatcher again, and we'll all oh, have some fun with oh, Boris and Bella all I, over I, again. I don't know about that. Mm. Oh no, no, Kev, Kev, so if you touched. don't let Kev, Kev, if you don't let me do it, I'm gonna show you those haunting scenes from the haunting again, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll yeah, put it I, on a soundtrack. I definitely for that. <laughs> Sweet, you know awesome. That. Um, and really quickly, Kev, p please tell people where they can find you on the internet, the good, glorious oh, internet. Yes, um, I'm on Twitter at Kevney, but that's with a C, C-E-V-I-N-I. And mm -hmm. I'm on, usually, on um, the Here Lies Amicus, which is Amicus Here, A-M-I-C-U-S-H-E-R-E. 
Yep, and then you've also got the film guff, which I know yeah, that we're going to be. Film guff. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that just happens. <laughs> Allie and Nick just grab you and say, like, get over here, Kev. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're doing a show. <laughs> it's kind of like what I've got to do in 30 minutes recording an episode yep. with real nerds. Like, they just grab me. <laughs> they're, like, we, they're, they're just like, we started you. We can end you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and that's going to wrap it up on mine, but thank you, Kev, once again, for coming down or by coming down, I mean, Skyping from across the channel. Um, and this is going to wrap it up for this episode of yesteryear Ballyhoo review. At last, something has happened to us. Um, if you want to see more things that are happening to us, you can follow us on Instagram at Ballyhoo review pod and on Twitter at Ballyhoo pod. Um, and on the next episode, circle up the wagons, pilgrim. We're going to Ford country. And specifically, we're going to be talking about 1956's The Searchers with return guest Adam Jewell. Uh, so settle in for some uncomfortable talk. And until then, this has been the, sh uh, the I almost said the Shamley silhouette. Damn, that, <laughs> that was last year, idiot. <laughs> um, but until next time, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Pod and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. That's R-E-V-U-E. -E. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. <laughs>